Welcome back to 80s High, the Cowabunga podcast that slices and dices its way through the most radical decade, from bodacious movies and television to awesome games and books, and everything else that made the sewers cooler than Dimension X. I'm Chris. And I'm Ben. And this is 80s High. Welcome, everybody. Benjamin, my goodness, have I bitten off a bigger slice of pizza than I can chew. What have I done to us? (laughs) It is the season of Thanksgiving and gorging to the point of regret is the point. So I feel like you were really on point. Happy belated uh, Double Double Turkey Day, man. And to all of our listeners. Yeah, indeed. We are recording just a little bit after the big holiday. So hopefully everybody had a good time. Didn't indulge too much. Not too many pizza slices down the old gullet. And, uh, you know, you're ready for more 80s nostalgia because we're here to deliver. But because this is such a massive topic, Ben, we can't do it just us two. We need an expert on our side, don't we? Well, and the theme of the episode is all about teamwork. We need a third middle-aged, uh, <laughs> middle-aged nostalgic podcast human. That's what we need. That's what we need. Perfect. And that person to help us steer this party wagon is none other than a dear friend of mine who I've known since fourth grade, basically at the height or the growing height of turtle mania. And this friend, as kids, we would play with our action figures, have massive battles. We would imitate superheroes fighting the forces of evil. We'd play so many cool computer and arcade and console games back in the day. And more recently, we co-hosted my previous podcast, along with Allison, who's been on the show, Creative Commoners. But today, he's here to help us talk about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Corey, welcome to the show. Cowabunga to both you gentlemen. Cowabunga. Hardy Cowabunga. Is that how you say it? I think I think that's how it works. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Tubular, you nailed it. That's great. If the last episode we could talk about how everything is snorkerific and good snork to you, sir, then absolutely. Mm-hmm. Good cowabunga to you, yes. Good cowabunga to you, yes. And to you. So as is tradition in homeroom, before we get to the topic, we do want to talk about anything that's kind of like 80s-tastic on our minds. And so, Ben, you had a couple things that have just seen the light of day recently that we had to talk about. Tell yeah, us. I mean, first it seems timely. You know, we did the only true Thanksgiving movie ever on this show previously, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And just five days ago, they released the 4K remaster that has a whole extra hour of footage. Wait, an extra hour? A whole extra hour to the film, which I think is just uh, Steve Martin arguing with the woman at the airport about trying to get yeah, think, it's all swears, it right? It's just like it's an hour of swears. Yeah. Ben, remember when we did the episode, or maybe you don't, it's been a while, but it's like, they had like the original cut was like four hours long. Yeah. So he cut out hours. So wow, a whole hour got put back in. I'm right. going to have to get that. Which makes That's me wild. like, I, want, I don't have a 4K player, but I'd like to get one. So now that I can watch this, it would be awesome. Oh my goodness. That sounds amazing. I love it. And the other thing I just wanted to share is I happened to be in New York uh, earlier this month for work and I made my way down to the Lower West Side a pilgrimage I've wanted to make ever since I was a tiny wee, wee little turtle. 
Uh, and that was to 14 North Moore Street, ladder number eight. Most people know it as the Ghostbusters Firehouse. Uh, that's um, awesome. Which was awesome. I went down there at night, uh, and they do have, like, the Ghostbusters logo lit up over the door. Uh, and even on the ground, they have two big spray-painted, not even spray-painted, maybe hand-painted, specific custom logos for the Firehouse. But they've like, adopted, like, the ghost from Ghostbusters, like, in the logo. But it was fun just to hang out there, and the best part was like there are a lot of there are a lot of tourists. It's New York, it's New York City, and people walk by not knowing that that's there, the firehouse. And it was fun to hang out for like a half an hour. People would be like, "Wait, whoa, hold on, is that the, that's the Ghostbusters firehouse?" And they do like a bunch of selfies. I saw people like voice like voice chat friends being like, "I'm at the Ghostbusters firehouse." It was actually really fun to like see all the excitement for a while of people stumbling upon it. It was awesome. That's amazing. It's cool that you got to share that with some strangers yeah. just walking by. It was awesome. Now, tis the season for family and friendship and, and coming close with those we love the most. And rumor has it that our newest friend, Peter Billingsley, you two have been getting closer, acquainted, and been hanging out and spending some time together. We've been hanging out. We're BFFs now. It's so great. Uh, and between this episode and our previous one, I had announced that HBO Max was dropping a Christmas story, Christmas, the true successor. To a Christmas story, <laughs> which we covered basically a year ago on the podcast in season two. And I got a chance to watch it. I went oh. in nervous. It's a sequel that's coming like 40 years later. My God. Yeah, maybe, was, maybe it won't work. Maybe it's a little dodgy. Who knows, right? You know, these, <laughs> yeah, these things just wave. don't typically, they don't typically work well. And I have to say I was charmed. It was a fun little revisit. It did not lean into the nostalgia too far. It felt like a good mix. And it also had enough of its own original content to make oh. it interesting. And the premise is that adult Ralphie is going to take his kids back to his childhood home to give them this great Christmas that his father had given him as a kid and his brother. And the series sees most of the actors return with notable exception, the mother and father are not there. Yeah. Darren McGavin, who played the old man, the father, you know, he passed away in 2006. And Melinda Dillon, our favorite 80s mother uh, from all the shows yes. that we've talked about in love, has uh, she's still alive, but is retired from acting. And so the mother role was replaced by Julie Haggerty, another 80s icon. She was in the Airplane movies. She was also in What About Bob? So she takes on the role of the mother, and I think does a pretty good job. Look, I'm not trying to humble brag here, but I was friends with one of Julie's family members in high school and got to hang out what? in her apartment a little bit. I never got to meet her in person, though. She was always off uh -huh. shooting something, but we got to, like, party in her apartment. We didn't get in trouble. No one got arrested, but it was a good time. That's awesome. That's I very love cool. it. But Julie's amazing. Julie's so talented. She's great. I mean, it, it's hard not to have Melinda there because she's just so wonderful. But I think if you're going to have a replacement, Julie took up that banner and that role quite well. And so I would highly recommend, if you like the original, do not go watch Christmas Story 2. But what a sacrifice you made for our listeners. It's going to be like a knockbuster. We always talk about those knockbusters where you're like, it's a Hanukkah story too. And you're like, wait, is this like a ripoff or what's going on here? <laughs> Don't go watch that. Terrible, terrible. Watch a Christmas story Christmas. Beautiful. Nice. Listen, guys, I found a sewer grate just down here at my feet. What do you say we slip through it and head into the deep underworld, the expansive labyrinth of this property so we can hopefully pop up in history class and learn the secret of the ooze the origin story of the teenage mutant ninja turtles come follow me pinch on my nose hold my breath i think i smell some pizza 
Oh, I mean, all the more reason to slide into the sewer. Just go into the sewer. <laughs> <laughs> in the sewer we made it through we popped up in history class and listeners if you have been living inside your shell perhaps like an ancient spacefaring turtle maturin from stephen oh, king's way to it pull metaverse it. i didn't think you were gonna pull an it to the turtles episode but you did i mean we impressive. had to come on the turtle's right there. Wow. That's right there obvious okay. connection there Obviously. (laughs) So if you're inside your space turtle shell all these years, what is, what are the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Well, it is an American media franchise created by comic book artists Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. And it follows Leonardo, Michelangelo, Donatello, and Raphael, four anthropomorphic turtle brothers... Named after, duh, Italian Renaissance artists. As you would. They're trained in ninjutsu. And they fight evil in New York City with the help of their sensei master and adoptive father, Splinter, who's an anthropomorphic rat. Again, obviously, all of these things make complete sense. And we're going to learn how all this came to be. But first and foremost, let's just talk at the top. These names are going to come up. And you're also going to learn about, oh, my God, so many iterations of TMNT. And so let's just talk a little bit about some of the characters and their qualities and some of the aspects that are pretty much stable throughout all of these eras, incarnations of the turtles. So you have Leonardo. He's the leader. He's disciplined. He's an expert swordsman. He has two katana and he wears a blue bandana. Eventually we'll talk about that. (gasps) Raphael is strongest of them. He's usually the most reckless. He's got a little bit of an attitude, often fights with Leonardo. There's a lot of clashing between those two. We've all had a brother we didn't get along with. (laughs) These are these guys. He wears the red bandana and has a pair of sai, which is basically, if you don't know what a sai is, think of a small sword or a long dagger with like two side prongs coming out. Yeah. That's what it is. Donatello is often the smart one. He uses his intellect. In some of the versions, he invents gadgets and vehicles. He wears the purple mask, wields a bow staff. And then we have Michelangelo. He's usually the least disciplined. He's fun-loving. He's he's just the party guy. He wants to have fun. He's also usually portrayed as the fastest or most agile. He wears the orange bandana and uses nunchucks. For the most part, we'll talk about that. We talked about Master Splinter, the mutant rat. He is the wise adoptive father of the turtles. He teaches them ninjutsu. Uh, In some iterations, he was a pet rat of ninja master Hamato Yoshi. In others, he is a mutated Hamato Yoshi. The turtles are joined by April O'Neil, who's variously depicted as a news reporter, a lab assistant, a computer programmer. Sometimes she has an interest in antiques. Casey Jones is a hockey mask wearing vigilante. He usually uh, becomes an ally of the turtles, often banters with April. Sometimes there's a little romantic love connection between the two. Of course, you have the turtles nemesis, the shredder. He leads the criminal ninja clan known as the foot. His real identity is usually the ninja Oroku Saki. In most versions, he has a second in command, Karai, who is a skilled martial artist. In some of those versions, she's his daughter. Mm. Often allied with Shredder is Baxter Stockman, a mad scientist. You'll sometimes see Krang, an alien warlord who looks like a stomach in the stomach of a goofy-looking robot. So good. I love Krang so much. (laughs) Krang's awesome. He's great. 
We also have the buffoonish henchmen of Shredder's Bebop and Rocksteady, so who were humans that were mutated uh, or mixed up with rhinoceros and warthog DNA. Rocksteady's the rhinoceros, Bebop is the warthog. There you go. The last thing I just want to cover, because we're going to talk about this a lot, and maybe you don't know what it is. There's a lot of martial arts out there. What is ninjutsu? Oh. It is a martial arts strategy and tactic that is based in unconventional warfare, guerrilla warfare, and espionage. Purportedly practiced by ninjas. A lot of question marks here. It was a separate discipline in some traditional Japanese schools, which integrated its study with more conventional martial arts, those being taijutsu, Shurukenjutsu, Kenjutsu, So, or Bojutsu, and others as well. And while there is an international martial arts organization that kind of represents modern styles of ninjutsu, there is no agreed upon historical lineage. It's very disputed as to where this comes from. Some schools claim to be that legitimate error, but again, it's not centralized like modernized martial arts, such as judo or karate. So the point is, like, it's, there's a lot of question marks here. I feel like in elementary school, like, were, did you take a, a combat class of some kind? My brother took karate. Oh. Yeah, I was never, I never did either. You're right. Yeah. Either. Did you, Ben? Did you? Uh, I did Taekwondo in elementary school, which you is did. mostly just somersaulting for like an hour. You just roll around on a, a wrestling mat. But you said your brother took it and you didn't. So is this where you're like, you have some empathy with like the Raphael Leonardo tension going on? <laughs> well, I will say in our younger days, my brother and I were often at odds. We... We're very different and did clash. So maybe it was a little bit of a Raph yeah. Leo, you know, coming to... Ninjutsu noogies. No nunchucks yeah. involved or anything, right? Maybe sometimes. <laughs> We're going to learn. <laughs> We're going to learn nunchucks are the most dangerous weapon you can ever have. Oh. You know what? My brother actually did own nunchucks for a while. What? Ooh, he did. Was your brother a Ninja Turtle? I think he wanted to also buy... Uh, throwing stars? You're making yeah, the, a throwing he, star motion. Are those Shuriken? Is that what they're called? Shuriken, yeah. Yeah. I think he wanted to buy Throwing Stars, and he I don't think he was allowed to, if I remember correctly. Probably good this call there. awesome. So th- again, I just wanted to lay some groundwork there because we're going to talk about so many iterations, but it's pretty standard throughout all of them. There's not a lot of variation. But let's talk about where this all began. And Corey's going to take us on a little journey of the origin story mm, of Teenage cool. Mutant Ninja Turtles. So Corey, take it away. Yeah. So let's go go back to November of 1983 in Northampton, Massachusetts. And it's Chris mentioned the, the creator. So it was Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. And as Eastman put it like later on, that it was some like late night joking around that mm. they were doing. And Eastman just drew a turtle standing on its hind legs, wearing a mask with nunchucks strapped to its arms. And he wrote Ninja Turtle on the page. And that made Laird just laugh. He thought it was funny. So he then drew kind of like a more refined version of that turtle. And then kind of bouncing back to Eastman, he drew four turtles, each armed with different ninja weapons. And then Laird outlined the group shot. And then he added Teenage Mutant to the Ninja Turtles. And that's how they were formed. This kind of like goofing around at night. A quick interjection. Ben talked about the magical formula in Dino Riders of people riding dinosaurs, shooting lasers. It's the golden triangle. It's perfect. And here you have the magical foursome of teenage mutant ninja (laughs) turtles. Four words never put together in succession in history. It's such a delightful, odd combination. Immediately you're hooked. 
And it roll. There's something about the cadence of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that, like, somehow, da 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 da. It's like there's something about that cadence. Too. It's Shakespearean iambic pentameter. It's gotta be. I well, and, and real fast, I love that these guys <laughs> were fast friends because they were both huge Jack Kirby fans. Mm-hmm. And, and Jack Kirby is sort of this father of if if, you, if that name rings a bell, but not really clear. Sort of the father of modern comic books. When you think of like these big detailed backgrounds and then like big beefy action heroes going at it. Kirby paved that way. And these guys, when they found each other, were both Kirby fans. They're like, we should work together. We should do, we should do comics together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Kirby created like, I think the fantastic four and he's yeah. and many other comics. And yeah, he was a big kind of like influence for them. Yeah. And then talking about influences, so kind of back to the Teenage Mutant Ninja of it all. So they drew a lot of influences from like comics of the time. So Peter Laird wrote in a letter, and this is January 23rd, 1984. They said the title is kind of an in-joke, understandable to regular comic readers. It refers obliquely to the proliferation recently in comics of teenage mutant superheroes and ninjas. Oh. So that's, that's actually a letter from the time, from 1984. So the Teenage Mutant X-Men, that's kind of where that comes from. The ninjas come from Frank Miller's Ronin and Daredevil. Sweet. Mm -hmm. And then the turtles kind of is their own thing, although there were some there was an indie comic called Cerberus at the time that featured a talking aardvark. So there might might be a little bit there too. (laughs) I'd also read that like Howard the Duck, like having a funny animal in comics, so like Howard the Duck was like this really unexpected Mm -hmm. kind of creature to have in a comic book. And then also, Corey, was the teenage aspect also from like New Teen Titans? I think I saw that yeah, as a potential that was probably influence a bit too. as well. Teen Titans are okay. really popular at the time as well. I'm just real thankful they took a left-hand turn with the turtle. Can we just pause for a moment and think of what this world would be if it was four aardvarks? Yeah, <laughs> not quite, doesn't quite work as well. Real teenage Mutant Ninja aardvarks. I don't know. The cadence does work. It still it works. It does work. Oh, God. So they like, they thought it was funny. They thought they had something there. So they started kind of like out working out of Laird's living room. They wrote the first issue of Ninja Turtles and they kind of scraped the cash together. They borrowed some money from Eastman's uncle to publish this first story Um, and kind of a little bit more back to the influences. So that first story kind of lays out the origin of the turtles. And there are a bunch of connections to Daredevil, actually. So in the first origin story, the canister of ooze that creates a turtle is actually in the origin story bounces off of a kid's head and blinds him. That's actually a very thinly veiled reference to Matt Murdock of Daredevil, who was blinded by radio. Yeah. What? So that's in the first comic first issue. And then, um, and then that's the, the radioactive ooze that creates the turtles, but also gives Daredevil his powers. Um, And then also you have Daredevil's mentor and sensei, his name is stick. So yeah. the turtle's mentor is Splinter. Oh. So good. Love it. Love like, it. My mind's being melted right now. And then Daredevil fought a clan of evil ninjas called the Hand. And who Stop did the him. turtles fight? The Foot. So That's- there's there's a bu- there's some very kind of thinly veiled Daredevil references in there. That's awesome. I never knew that. Yeah, so it's it's very cool. So they scrape together this cash and they kind of like self-publish. They go to comic book stores uh, and and sell the comics themselves, and then they they kind of have a hit on their hands. People the the first printing sells out. They have a second printing, 
And then they create Mirage Studios called Mirage mm. because they're working out of their living room. There's like nothing there. So that's why they <laughs> called it Mirage Studios. Yeah, these guys live together. Basically, Laird invited Eastman to live in his place. So they're like living and working together. So they're roommates as well as like partners in business, which is so cool. That's awesome. I like it. But a good example of like fake it till you make it, right? Yeah, for sure. They realized they really had something on their hands. And I was watching an interview with Eastman and he was just, he said he was so excited in like January of 1985 when they could quit their jobs and become full-time comic book creators. He's like, he's kind of like, this is the dream. Like, he's like, you couldn't imagine anything better than that, right? Because they, like Ben was saying, they had idolized comics creators for their whole lives and now they were actually doing it. Um, and, you know, yeah. this was the, the pinnacle for them was making money. Um, and this kind of led to this boom in black and white comics. Since you had this like success with TMNT, there was this like a bunch of other um, knockoffs, which we can talk about later, um, that came about. And Corey, what's the tone of these original comics? It's lighthearted. They're, they love pizza. Everything's tubular, right? Like that's yeah. that's that's the tone, right? It's very kid friendly. No, it's they're they're like very decidedly like PG thirteen. There's like violence, maybe a little even more. So there's blood. They're darker. Um, I actually read the first couple issues kind of in prep for this. And there's definitely like a darker tone. There's more violence. Isn't there a beheading? There, I think there is. I mean, one of the guys has swords as a weapon. So it's, and they weren't fighting robots in the beginning. It was, it was, they were fighting real people. So it was was fairly bloody. So definitely not like the cartoon, for sure. Not like the cartoon. But the crazy thing is like the first couple issues, there was so much of the turtles that were already there. There was... You know, the four turtles, as we talked about, they were all like all their names, all their weapons, even I think their personalities were there a bit. But you had Splinter, you had Shredder, April was in there, Baxter Stockman, uh, Casey Jones, the foot, even the Mausers, which I had kind of forgot about oh, Mausers yeah, until Mausers. Yeah, until reading that because they show up in the, the uh, video games. Kind of so I, I kind of love it when when you kind of read the original thing and so much of it is already kind of established in that original thing. That's a lot to like really launch with. That's a lot of lore and character to start off. That's cool. There's one big difference in the design though. The turtles have tails in the comic book, but as you're kind of reading the comic, you kind of see why, because they can be, they're kind of like short little stubby tails between their legs and they're like a different appendage. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah. I could see why they, they kind of left those out in future iterations. You said it was a darker tone. It just took a different angle with the originals. I get it. Mm -hmm. Oh boy. Woof. So they kind of had this big success on their hands. And like I said, it left a lot of follow on. So it really quickly. So, you know, 1984, when they published the first one, 1985 and 86 playmates approaches them to like create toys for the turtles. So they went really quickly from publishing their own comic to like having interest from big corporations, which is amazing. As we like to say, merchandising, merchandising, which just didn't take very long, right? No, that's pretty awesome. And and Corey, one thing that I also found that was great is that Shredder's design was inspired by a cheese grater. Yeah. <laughs> that's so, pretty good. Old chrome dome. <laughs> Which, I mean, if you've ever cut yourself on a cheese grater, they're not to be messed with. No. They just, they look innocuous, but even a plastic cheese grater will rip you to shreds. So it's kind of great. And I think in that first, like the original comic was just supposed to be one issue, right? They did not a- anticipate a series. So doesn't Shredder die in that first comic? Yeah, so so Shredder does appear, and I actually really dig Shredder's design, and especially in that original comic, he looks really cool. But yeah, they they published the first issue as a one-off, but they thought 
that they might be able to bring it on later. Um, but yeah, Shredder dies like that. Shredder's introduced and then killed off immediately in that first Uh-oh. first issue. I think he he comes back later on through some you know mumbo jumbo. But yeah, <laughs> it's another <always> thing jumbo <laughs> is the Krang aliens show up in those early issues too, which is pretty wild. Oh, okay. But they're not in a robot. They actually like as again PG thirteen nature. They come out of somebody's stomach or something like that, which is pretty cool. Wait, wow. the Krang aliens, there's multiple? There's like Krang is a whole species that shows up? Apparently, there were like multiple ones in the in the comic that I read. Uh, they show oh, up kind cool. of like as a cliffhanger, so I didn't see much more about them. I have found this. It's a species called, hold on, I did find this. Utram? Utram. The Utram race from the comics. Okay. So I will say this much, just to jump ahead. I think the second Michael Bay produced version of the Turtles, the newest incarnation, has Krang in it. And yeah. I think he's he's not in the body. He's like, there's a body connected to him, but he's sort of outside of it with mm. tentacles that go back to the body. I don't know oh, if that's like, like the attached. original. Mm, yeah, I don't know if that's like the original version you're talking about, but he wasn't like in the stomach, but he was kind of connected around there co- controlling a body. It was an interesting design. One of the other interesting things, once when we talk about the movie, the movie takes some things from the comics, which is interesting yes. as well. We can talk about that when the movie get to the movie. Yeah, for sure. And it, I, what I loved about this is so much of it is steeped in parody, and you almost see it as, and it started as a joke, like, "Oh, this is funny. We're just screwing around." All of a sudden, they're like, "Wait a second, we got <laughs> oh, a little man. something here, don't we?" Oh, and then it becomes this thing, and like you said, Corey, it's not long before the comics. I think like a couple years, and then suddenly merchandising happens. So how does that come into play? Well, these guys are approached by Mark Friedman. He is a licensing agent with Surge Licensing. And he basically stumbles upon these comics. He's trying to make a name for himself. And he's like, wait a second, these seem really cool. There's some potential here for toys. And he approaches Laird and Eastman And apparently he shows up in this suit looking all fancy. And they're like in their living room. Again, they live and work out of the same place. I think they're painting their living room. And they've got like shorts and a t-shirt on. And then he shows up in the studio's headquarters. And and then the Mirage Studios. (laughs) And he shows up in this like three-piece suit. Well, the funny thing is he's also faking it. So everyone is just out there. It's impression management. Hey, we've got a studio. I'm a successful licensing agent. And it could be further from the truth. I love it. I really love Friedman. So there's this great documentary on Netflix, The Toys That Made Us, uh, season three, episode one, great overview of the history of the turtles, but Friedman's in it. And he's just so passionate and like positive and fun of like wheeling and dealing, making all this stuff come together. I just think it's good to like see a positive licensing guy after we just talked about Freddy, the the bitter, (laughs) spiteful licensing guy from Smurfs and Snorks. That's our interpretation of his actions. Um, but Friesman is just so positive and excited about the property. It's cool that he like got on board. Absolutely. And, and really, he again, he was the one that saw the potential in it. He goes to them and they're like, okay, you can do this, but we want to retain all the rights. But go ahead and see if you can sell this thing. And Friedman shops it around. And eventually, as Corey mentioned, Playmates Toys, based out of Hong Kong, is interested. And they're like, okay, let's see, uh, let's see what you got. So... Long story short, they decide on this small original run. It only focuses on the four turtles, Master Splinter, one of the Foot Clan soldiers, and Shredder. Like, those are the original run. We're going to test this out, see if this will even sell. Because it's a big investment for Playmates to put into production and casting these molds and doing all the distribution. And they say, well, you know what? 
we'll do it, but you need to make a cartoon about these toys so we can sell them. And if we've said anything about the 80s in this show, cartoons in the <laughs> 80s were a vehicle to That's sell why they children existed. toys. 100%. That's the only reason they're there. 30-minute commercials. Yeah. Ah. Uh, We've talked about it with real Ghostbusters. We talked about it with Dino Riders. We've talked about it any toys we've talked about. Yeah, right. And Playmates was basically like, hey, there's been success with He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers doing the same thing, promoting a toy line with an animated series. And so they partnered with an animation studio, Murakami Wolf Swenson, to produce this animated series. It's a five-episode run, like a mini-series, if you will, to introduce children to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, you know, complete with beheadings, stabbings of human beings. <laughs> aliens bursting out of stomachs. It was Aliens yeah. bursting out of stomachs. All of the turtles are wearing red bandanas and sashes because when they colorize the original, there's not different colored bandanas. They're all the same color palette. So the only differentiation is what weapons they're wielding. Right. Yeah, I forgot to mention that in the original comics, yeah, because they were all black and white. So there was right. no different colored bands. They also didn't have the like first letter initial belts that they yeah, have in, right. the, in the comics, you know, each one, R, M, L, and all that. They didn't have any of that. The only way you could tell in part was with the weapons. And that's where the cartoon comes into play, absolutely. Because they're like, okay, if we're going to market this to kids, they need instant recognition of the story, of the lore. We talked about this with Dino Writers. They're like, we need to build a mythology that will get kids addicted. Yeah. This show, I think did it in such an amazing way, they hit the nail squarely on the head. And so we set up this basic premise in these five-episode arc. Four turtles living in the sewer with their master Splinter. They befriend a news reporter, April O'Neill. She is a news reporter in this one. In the original comic, Corey, she was a, a lab assistant, correct? Yeah, I think she was Baxter Stockman's lab assistant yeah. was the, in the first comic. Yeah. yeah. So they make her a news reporter because they needed a way for the turtles to get information about what's going on. Because remember, they're in hiding initially. They're not out in public. They're like a secret yeah. and they can't expose themselves. Like she's their connection to the outside world and she would know all the happenings as a news reporter. So there's your kind of introduction to a, a different version of her. And through this process, they learn about the Shredder, Krang, the Foot Clan, and their plans to take over the world with their amazing sphere tank with an eyeball on top called the Technodrome. The Technodrome. God, that's... Super cool. There's just so much weight with that term. Like, Technodrome, it's obviously invented in the 80s, and it just brings... If you knew the Cheerios, you can picture it right now. There was just so much awesome about the Technodrome. And I think G.I. Joe's had, like, a Terror Drome or something. There were a lot of dromes that were happening in the 80s. Yeah. Which is interesting because I don't think drome is a word, like yeah. dome yeah, or can we, drone. Can we pause on that real fast? What is a drome? Does anybody know what a drome is? I don't know. Maybe it's a drone dome. Maybe. Okay, I've, I've looked it up. It always has to be used in combining. Otherwise, if it's not, it's a region in France. Uh, mm. It's either denoting a place for running or racing okay. or denoting something that runs uh. or proceeds in a certain way, like a palindrome. Well, that makes Interesting, sense. Interesting, running or racing. Okay. It, it was always racing around to the surface to cause mayhem. I mean, it had tank treads, so, you know, yeah. it makes sense. Yeah, it, it did. makes sense. I love it. It's because it was awesome. Another way to say all that is this was a way to introduce all the play sets and toys. It's basically what this five-part episode was. Uh, and again, we talked about that with Dino Riders. Like each episode introduced a new dino or a new character. And very much that's what these five episodes did. 
but this is for younger kids, so the tone is lighter. There's more tongue-in-cheek humor. It has to appeal to children, so no more slashing humans. As Corey mentioned, the Foot Clan is replaced by robots, so much like the Sentinels and X-Men, we can blow up as many as we want, and we're not causing murder. <laughs> Also, they each get their signature color, and as Corey mentioned, the belt buckle with their initial, all for recognition as to who's who. And I don't want to get too much into this, but the way that they mutate into the turtles and Splinter mutates is a little bit different than the comics. Mm. Basically, it's like turtles cross with a human and become the Ninja Turtles. Splinter is a human that crosses with a rat to become Splinter. It's nuanced. It's not like that big of a deal, but it is different than the comics. But the thing that brings it all together, gentlemen, what brings all of this lore, mythology, storytelling together in amazing, what, 30, 45 seconds? The theme song? The theme song. One of the best theme songs ever. It is a gym. It's so good. I watched the, the the original show with my daughters, and they, they thought that the theme song was a jam. They were, like, way into the theme song. Well, this is good because how old are they roughly? What, They're like what are their ages? 13 and 14. So they liked it. That's a hard target to please. Mm-hmm. I just have to say, right? So <laughs> the rest of the cartoon, they weren't quite as in on, but the, the theme song okay. they were definitely down with. Because both components are incredible, right? It's, it tells the story of the whole show very quickly, very efficiently, yep. in a very like quantitized way. And somehow the music is so iconic. It doesn't play down to kids. It doesn't sound like kids' music. It sounds like a freaking awesome 80s rock band <laughs> riffing out about Ninja Turtles. It hits both sides so well. You can't not sing along to it. Like, I found myself like, Teenage Ninja Turtles, yeah. Heroes on a mm-hmm. Half Shell, Turtle Power. Power. Like, it just, so it, it has this great cadence. The song was created by Chuck Lorre. Yeah. Which is wild. Which is kind of crazy. Like, he's, he's created shows like Big Bang Theory and uh, I think Two and a Half Men. Mm-hmm. And not someone you would think is creating the most energetic, iconic theme song to a children's animated series, <laughs> awesome. but uh, but he did. And my goodness. Apparently, Chuck Lorre wrote it like in two days. What? Originally, they wanted the like 60s rock group, 1960s rock group, The Turtles, to write it. Oh, that's right. And then they, they bugged out or whatever. And then they had to write it like in no time at all, which is pretty wild. And I think it was like performed in 90 minutes. So it's like he yeah. came up with it quickly and it was put together quickly and it was done. It's just wild. So yeah, that theme song really brings it all together. It's so cool. The other thing that's great is this is, you know, we've talked about this before, another animated series, another banger cast of voice yeah. actors. Ben, you love talking about voice actors. I want to hand you the mic. Corey, I know you know a lot of this too. So who are some of those big names? Who who do they voice? And then how might we know them in other roles? I love it. And if anyone wants to attempt any impressions tonight, you're welcome to go for it. You're welcome to swing swing for the moon here. Um, I'm gonna go I feel like you're looking at me for this. Yes, you're looking no, at I, me. I will need your Not help me. here. Um, so I'll go. I'll go in like increasing order of sort of the the resumes here. So April O'Neil is voiced by Renee Jacobs, a voice actor working on a lot of different properties around that era. Krang is voiced by Pat Fraley, and I loved in his interview because Krang has such a unique voice to it. Uh, all the main cast talked about what their inspiration was from where they got the voice from, and he said she was a Jewish mother. So you have the like, I feel like you, there's big cheeks, there's <laughs> jowls with Krang. Those turtles, what are they doing? You know, like, kind of like that. So good. 
Patrick also voiced Baxter Stockman and Casey Jones. Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love Baxter Stockman, too. That's a great voice. Mm. A major titan on this show that people, I think, don't necessarily would never guess. Uh, Shredder is voiced by James Avery, probably mm-hmm. better known as the dad on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. This blew my mind. Not the dad. Uncle Phil. Sorry. Thank you. Uncle, Phil. Yeah, Uncle, Phil. Uncle Phil. Uncle Phil. Oh, my God. That's right. When I wa- rewatched a couple episodes, I clocked, I'm like, Shredder sounds familiar to me. Who is that? And I, I clocked yeah. it as Uncle Phil. I'm like, Uncle Phil? That's, That's awesome. So awesome. Bebop, rock steady, you fools. <laughs> I want you to destroy those turtles. Oh, that was really good. That was nicely done. Shredder, <laughs> I want you to get me back to Dimension X. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> There's your voices. Sure thing, boss. Oh, go eliminate them turtles. Oh my God. There you Wait, go. You, I just hold, you're running. You're sprinting down the sewer. You're surfing down the sewer. Hold on. Um, but Avery said he treated it very Shakespearean and he wanted to make it like a Shakespeare play, but over the top. Well, this is a good place to pause because they did record in the same room together. Often you will have voice actors in their own recording booth. Sometimes they're in their own home because that's what their like bread and butter career is. But they all sat together and that actually created a really interesting dynamic to help, I think, launch these characters, which you don't get in a lot of shows. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, you can kind of bounce off each other's energy. I picked like two episodes to watch. I watched the first one and then I watched one from like season three that kind of was rated somewhat highly. And it was a good like James Avery episode because it was sh- somehow Shredder got the personality of Michelangelo through some weird hologram backwards disc thing. It, it made, it didn't make any sense, <laughs> but, um, but he was acting like Michelangelo. So it was kind of great having James Avery play Michelangelo. It was really fun. Oh, that's oh, amazing. That's fun. That's good. I love that. Master Splinter is voiced by Peter Renaday, um, and he just was kind of directed to sound like a learned man, be the sensei. Listen to me, turtles. If you are going to learn ninjutsu, you have to stop eating all of that pizza. Nailed it. That's exactly what he went for. But he also did Vernon, and he said he tried to get as far away from sensei as he could with Vernon. Who's Vernon? Vernon's uh, April's like newscaster partner on the cartoon. He'd be like, April, oh, I don't remember that guy's let name. me carry the camera. Why don't you ever tell me where you're going? He was, I don't know. Snagglepuss, are you here? Kind of, right? <laughs> right <Totally>. already. <laughs> so we have Michelangelo, voiced by Townsend Coleman, who also did various voices in Dino Riders and the real Ghostbusters, both of which we've done. That's right. Um, but he said his big inspiration was Sean Penn's character Spicoli in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. <laughs> Makes sense. So, of like, course. actually, like your classic Ninja Turtle, like, oh, totally, dude, radical, man, yeah. Little surfer, little stoner, sure. Little salt, yeah, perfect. Donatello is Barry Gordon. Barry didn't have a huge resume at the time, but I love. They just said they loved his voice naturally. They just said, just be yourself. So, if you when you hear Barry Gordon talk in an interview, it's Donatello. Just a little higher, yeah. which is so funny. And he also does uh, B-pop. And he said he just really he slowed B-pop. it down and tried to make him like a dumb kid. Leonardo, the leader of the Turtles, is voiced by Cam Clark. And he was inspired uh, by the professor in Gillingham Island. That he just always hmm. had to be sort of like the leader and really well put together. Kind of had a higher pitched as well. He jokes in the documentary that he always... The two lines he always has to say, he got really tired of them in the run of the show, was, We've got to practice! And we've got to think of something fast. Like, <laughs> he just got really tired of that. But he also did uh, Rocksteady. Mm-hmm. And the only other one that I'll mention, Raphael is by Rob Paulson, who I've talked about a million times. One of my favorite voice actors of all time. 
I wanted to leave it on Rob Paulson because of this whole cast. Rob has come back several times in several more iterations of the Turtles when they come out, and not always playing Raphael. He's sort of switched around between different Turtles that he voices uh, in the series. But I, I love that he's like still with the property. Yeah, he was also like the the director of the voice actors in one of the later series. Oh, really? Oh, nice. He's a pro. That's pretty cool. He's a pro. Uh, anybody else that worth mentioning that I, that I missed? The only other thing I want to say is when James Avery left the show, I mean, it ran for like 10 seasons. When he left around season seven, yeah. there's five other people who voiced Shredder. Really? <laughs> and if you look at some of the other versions, they are not anywhere nearly as good. James Avery, Avery really <laughs> killed it. He's so good. So yeah, like I, when I heard some other ones, they just sounded awful. I was like, oh, just stop. He's impossible to replace. And what I love too is like the, because they're all in the same room, apparently in those early sessions, they did a lot of ad-libbing. And they came up with a bunch of stuff off the cuff, including the word cowabunga. That was not a word that was initially written into the script. That's cool. Yeah, so Renee Jacobs had said that one of them, and I can't remember who, had come up with the word cowabunga, and which has become like the most iconic Ninja Turtles catchphrase of all of the tubular, bodacious, radical, gnarly. Like of all those, that's the one we associate with probably nothing other than Ninja Turtles. That's awesome. I didn't know that. That's great. That is really cool. So, again, we have all of these elements to make a great show. And out of the gate, those first five episodes are just really strong. The toy line sells out. Playmates makes a bigger order of toys, sells out. It is just a runaway success out of the gate. Apparently, the creators did so well, Eastman and Laird, that Eastman bought an actual tank. I was watching an interview with him, and he was mentioning the tank that he bought. Like, (laughs) yeah, he... (laughs) I think it didn't run or something like that, but it was like $30,000 for a tank that he bought, um, yeah, that he owned for a while. I don't know, he doesn't own it anymore, but it was an M1 tank. Yeah. yeah. I saw he liked to use it as a base during paintball, that he would like hide in it while playing paintball with his friends and kind of just shoot out of it. That was awesome. I know who's going to win that match. One of the other things that made the toy line so successful, because it, it didn't have a smooth start to begin with. Several artists tried to get the turtles right. They couldn't quite nail it. And they brought in Mark Taylor who was the chief designer for the He-Man toy line. Oh, that's right. And when I learned that, and you put Turtles and He-Man action figures near each other, you can totally see his design work. How he does muscles, how parts move, which parts of action figures activate and do things. I thought that was a cool little insight of like, oh yeah, I can see the He-Man genes in the Turtles toys. I think you're absolutely right. Did they have rubber heads like the He-Man toys? I can't remember. This one, the, the OG Leonardo right now has a squishy noggin. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the He-Man toys were like that too. Right, right. Like kind of the rubber head. So there's some similarities yeah. there. It's awesome. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think it's a mix of the show being successful and the toys being of good quality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This toy line is a huge success all the way to 1997. And so we're not going to talk about every toy because do you guys know how many toys were made, how many figures, vehicles, playsets in total were made during this nine-year run? Man, there's so many. I'm going to go 311. I'll say 311. 311 units. I was going to say 300. That was my guess. <gasps> okay. Guess. So maybe he prices right at me. He went right below. Simpatico. You guys are both still a little south. Really? Wow. 400. It's about 400 wow. action figures, oh vehicles, playsets. I'm sorry. No, I'm going to take that back. Sorry. 400 figures and dozens of vehicles and playsets. So figures alone were 400. Whoa. That's insane. 
It is wild. So I told you about that initial run. It does really well. So later in 88, they add more friends and foes. April gets a figure. Bebop and Rocksteady get a figure. We also get the vehicles, the party wagon. Yes. That's that VW van. We also get the turtle blimp. So out of the gate, we get some really cool vehicles for the turtles. The next year in 89, we get Casey Jones, Baxter Stockman. Krang finally gets a release. Uh, Mousers get a release. We also get some side characters that are introduced. Leatherhead, he's an alligator. Genghis Frog. We had basically like (laughs) frog equivalents of the turtles, which are like a little simpler minded. They kind of talk like this sometimes. We're the the frogs. I'm Genghis Frog. So he's one of them that's released. We also get a sewer playset. Move aside. Firehouse from Ghostbusters. It's pretty pretty good. Or better yet. Put the sewer at ground level <gasps> with the firehouse, and then you've got like all that depth. Then you got a crossover, which is a weird crossover. I hope we're going to get to in contemporary culture later on, because they also have a Batman crossover. My goodness, it's so good. So there also is the Foot Cruiser, which is like an old '59 Caddy convertible. It's for the bad guys. <sighs> Uh, we get a lot of other small, you know, cheap one-off vehicles. We get water vehicles. We also get a retro mutagen ooze, which I think is like the slime that you can like. It's not like Play-Doh because it's slimier, but it still sticks together. I don't know what it's like. Nickelodeon made like Gak back in the day Maybe in the like 90s. Gak. And I think there was like an equivalent for Ghostbusters of like ectoplasm that you could get. Oh, Same kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then... The series continues, as I mentioned, 1990 to 97. We get a few good ads, and then we get a lot of weird stuff. (laughs) And again, there's 400. I'm not going to talk about them all. We're going to hit some highlights. Most importantly, value add. We get the turtle copter, which is kind of like a cool vehicle the turtles have. We also get the Technodrome playset. It opens up, and there's like little settings or rooms inside. It's really cool. It looks... Like the real deal. I don't remember how much that thing cost, but it could not have been cheap. I'm not going to try and jump to chemistry too much, but like G.I. Joe, aircraft carrier, Ghostbusters firehouse, Castle Grayskull. Mm. This is in like the pantheon of the best bases toys ever made. I agree. It is pretty wild looking. And yeah. I, I'm seeing it going for like hundreds of dollars on eBay. So like yeah. right now? Yeah. Like I okay. see a $500 one. Still not as much as the, what was it, the Brontosaurus from Dino that Riders. Was I think that was like what is even $800 or $1,000, something crazy. So then we get a lot of goofy variants because they start running out of characters. So they do a couple things. There's a bunch of strange side characters that are added. But then we get things like action figures that do special moves. We get talking action figures. We get Transformers. Ben, I think you have one of the Transformer turtles. Raphael sitting right here with me who turns into a pet turtle. They turn a little pet turtles. There's trolls. Remember trolls? Trolls version yeah, of the those turtles. Are funny. Horror movie monsters. We get dinosaurs. We get Star Trek turtles. How, how did you not reason. have those? You did not have any of those? That wasn't a thing? I didn't, Corey. No, I didn't. I think I vaguely remember those for some reason. Okay. Though, I was going to say, your family was like big into Star Trek. I was like, maybe the, yeah, uh, I think I was the household had it. Aged out of turtles at that point, too. So, yeah. Fair. We also get. Turtles that are around sports, samurai, wild west, astronauts, clowns, surfers, punks, farmers. You can actually Mm. get a farmer, I think it's Raph, with a tractor. What is going on here, people? Off the rails. We got to make money. Running out of ideas. 
New variant, exactly. This is your Animal Crossing crossover you had been begging for. Now you can do it. You can have a turtle and farm too. There it is. And then you get some of the gross out humor, including the toilet taxi. I don't know what it was about. Literal toilet humor. But we talked about a toilet monster and real Ghostbusters. Wait, do you have the toilet taxi? Oh my God. Ben is showing us the toilet taxi. I do have. Whoa. It's like a go-kart four-wheeler and you sit on a toilet Yep. for reasons. As you do. Well, it's very efficient. You know, you don't have to pull over when you got to go. Wait, wait, wait. Does it shoot plungers from the front? Yeah, is that what those pl- plungers are? Two plungers. Oh, yeah. Oh, they just move. The okay. steering wheel's a sink. It's got toilet paper oh, on the back. Oh, my God. It's great. With feet on the toilet paper, which is good. Right, right. Nice, nice. I know they live in a sewer, but did we need this? I don't know. We got it. And apparently Ben loved this. it. Little, little Ben loved I kept it. On so. to it. Yeah, little Ben needed it for sure. <laughs> yeah, 100%. <laughs> So suffice to say, between 1988 and 97, huge toy line, as I mentioned, 400 figures, dozens of vehicles and play sets. It was a massive success for everyone involved. Playmates was laughing to the bank. Yeah, for sure. It doesn't stop there in the 80s because we get some video games. We got to take the turtles from the comic book, from the page, to the small screen, to the other small screen, which is the video game realm where we can take control of the turtles not just watch them 1989 the nintendo entertainment system home console we get the first turtles video game developed by konami this is like one of the first games they developed and of course they're going to go on to develop a huge percentage of these video games Uh, this was really popular it sold about 4 million copies it was one of the best selling nes games just super cool. I know we want to talk more about our experiences of it. We're just going to put a little pin in it for chemistry. But is there anything else in terms of this game that we should talk about for now? Yeah, I just remember it being really high selling. And the graphics were pretty good, too. Like, it was a pretty good looking game. And I think hard, if I remember correctly, it was characterized as being pretty challenging. Notoriously hard. And we can talk about that. Yeah, I'm glad for you gave sure. us a chance to put a pin in it. Because I have to go pull the controller out of the screen downstairs after I give it a shot. <laughs> Ben's modern revisit to it uh, was a testament to how my God. painstaking that game was. My goodness. Okay, can't wait. Uh, also in 1989, we get that first arcade game. This was a very iconic, oh, yeah. burned in my memory video game. Many a quarter and token were gobbled up to play this game. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It was that beat-em-up side-scroller, also released by Konami. Again, also in 1989. It's not like the Nintendo game. They're very different. Yeah, they are very different. Yeah, this one is centered around the first season of the cartoon. So plot-wise, it's very similar. And it was released as a four-player arcade cabinet. So you and friends or strangers could all gather around a cabinet and play as all four turtles at the same time. So awesome. You would also find some two-player alternative cabinets that were out there. And it looked gorgeous, too. Like, the graphics looked like the cartoon. And if I remember correctly, too, like, when nobody was playing the game, didn't it play, like, the theme song and, like, partially the cartoon? Like, I remember turtles jumping through the air and stuff. It looked like the cartoon, and it looked amazing. You're right. That was a really good adaptation. The theme song was definitely there. And I do remember, like, the cutscenes where you see them all jump in and, Mm -hmm. you know, it kind of introduces each of the characters. It was really cool. And this was a massive success worldwide. It was a hit. It was the highest grossing dedicated arcade game of 1990 in the U.S. and Konami's highest grossing arcade game. 
And I can wow. understand why. Yeah, so much 100%. freaking fun. Again, we'll talk more about it. And it eventually did come to the home systems, uh, including NES, which we'll also talk about, I'm sure. Uh, so even though that original game was different than this arcade version, the arcade version, if we're all confused, does eventually come to the NES. It's probably like one of the very last yeah. NES games before Super Nintendo comes around. Does that game predate the Simpsons game and the X-Men game? I, I believe it does, right? I think it was a little bit before those. Because, I mean, that became a very popular style of arcade game. We also talked about Sunset Riders. Like, there was yeah. a lot of those. Or even um, there was the uh, Avengers. Yeah, there was an Avengers game like that, too. Yeah. Yeah, that became like a really cool genre, if you will, or type of game that you would find in arcades all the time. Again, to successfully gobble up all of our quarters. <laughs> But, you know, all of this success, guys, it's a double-edged katana because while this whole franchise is a massive success, it is drifting from the origins that Eastman and Laird put so much care and attention into. So much so that they actually published an editorial to address those concerns and critiques. And they said, look, we've allowed the wacky side to happen and enjoy it very much. All the while... We've kept the originals very much ours. And that's pretty much the comics, which, quite frankly, is probably not most people's experience with TMNT. Mm -hmm. Once that cartoon's out and the toys and the video games, I don't think that comic is the biggest source material for most people. Yeah, Yeah, they were a little uncomfortable with the concessions they had to make. I mean, the cool thing is that they still had control over a lot of it, which is pretty wild. And we can talk more about why that's a big deal later. But I do have a quote from Eastman in 1998 around this too. And he he says, there's some stuff we really don't like and some stuff that we wish we hadn't said yes to, stuff that we wanted to do, but we said, we'll always have our black and white comics to tell the kind of story we want to tell. So even though they still had control, they kind of realized they had to make some of these concessions to make it more commercially viable. I mean, they were not excited about the voice acting of the cartoon. They were not excited about some of the choices. Uh, they thought Krang looked ridiculous. <laughs> and they they hated the body, but it had already been so far in production. There was It was too late to change it. So yeah, they definitely, I like that, what you're saying, Corey. It's like they had the control, but they were like, okay, what are we willing to fight for? And what do we just sort of say... This is, you know, not worth our time because (laughs) as this became more successful, they are falling farther and farther away from actually doing what they initially did, which is create comic books because now they're managing a massive merchandising empire. And that's a whole other job. Yeah, that's what Eastman said in one of the interviews I watched with him. He said, yeah, that was kind of one of the downsides is they they were having less fun because they were they were talking to lawyers and business people and they weren't doing what they loved, which was writing comics. Yeah. It's like authors who go out and they write, they pour their self into this novel and they make it, and then they're supposed to be a promoter. They have to go out on the road and self-promote and advertise. And it's like, this is not my skill set. And I have to imagine that's what Eastman and Laird felt like. They're like, this is not what I set out to do, but this is sort of, again, that the sharp edge of the katana of our success. <laughs> <sighs> oh, man. So. I've checked it over with my co-hosts. They're allowing this little bit of transgression to creep into the 90s because we can't go to chemistry class without first talking about that movie that came out in the 90s. And our rationalization, so we'll sleep tonight, is it was developed, created, and filmed in the 80s. It just released in 1990. Yeah, that's a fair concession. I'm okay with that. I'm I'm, I'm at peace with this. (laughs) So this is a minor violation. Uh, But again, I know we're going to talk about it so much that I think it's interesting because what we've just came off of is like, eh, we're feeling compromised. But with this movie Corey mentioned a while back, 
it kind of is a blend of the original with a little bit of the cartoon and what it became. So it becomes this interesting melding of the origins and the popularity. Again, due to this, the commercial success of the franchise, there's a first Turtle film released in 1990. If you're not familiar with this, we're not talking animated, live action. Guys, this is risky to take Super the comic risky. book to the small screen, to the big screen, but not as animation as live action. You have to imagine a lot of people were sitting around that table like, oh, yeah, like how do you even happen. put the turtles on screen without them looking ridiculous, right? Yeah. And the world created in the cartoons is so ridiculous. Like they have a blimp mm-hmm. and there's Krang yeah. and like a, a rhinoceros human. Like how do you translate in this live action without being totally how do you make it not the Garbage Pail Kids movie? That's the question we're trying yeah, to figure I, out. How do you <laughs> how do you avoid that dumpster fire? We you go to the master, right? That's how you how you do it. You go to the master for sure. You have to imagine there's a whiteboard and it all it says is how do we not make the Garbage Pail Kids movie? <laughs> mm-hmm. And then what does someone write under that, Corey? Jim Henson is yeah, the answer. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. if it's the 80s and you're going to avoid Garbage Pail Kids notoriety, you go to the man himself, the Jim Henson creature shop. It's awesome. And apparently he was nervous about taking it on. It took some convincing because they're like, I don't want to ruin my legacy with this like trash garbage pail movie that maybe this could be, right? <laughs> so yeah. it took convincing to, to bring him on board. Also, he's come from Fraggle Rock, which is we're going to end war and usher in world peace. Yeah. To we're going to have sewer ninjas cutting people up. It's a dark movie. It goes mm-hmm. back to the dark origins of the comic book. And that is not Henson's style. He was actually very conflicted yeah. about That's working really on this movie. That's a really good point. Interesting. Yeah. But he does sign on and I think is a huge, huge piece of the success of this movie. So the script is based mainly on those comics. Uh, It includes the origins of the turtles from the comic books, not like the cartoon. Mm -hmm. You've got a rooftop battle scene, which is in the comics. You have their visit to the farmhouse to regroup and kind of catch their breath before that ultimate showdown battle with the Shredder. So that is all from that OG comic. But what they borrow from the animated series is the colored bandanas, their love of pizza, the kind of jokey, punny interactions – April O'Neil stays as a television reporter, but we get no Krang, Bebop, Rocksteady, no mention of Dimension X. Yeah, right. That's how they ground it a little bit. Yeah. And we can talk a lot about the cast members of this. There's a lot because one character alone was cast by five people. It's crazy. Because you not only have voice actors, you have in-suit performers, which were not usually the same person. You usually had a facial assistant, somebody controlling the face the eyes and the yeah. you know the mouth moving and all that kind of stuff. And then in some cases, you had a stunt double. And in one case, you had two stunt doubles. So <laughs> there's a, a lot of people it's just insane. to bring this one character to life. Yeah. Jim Henson said that they were like the most advanced costumes ever made at that point. Just wow. the amount of animatronics. The faces are really expressive in that movie. It's pretty wild. Yeah. The other thing I couldn't figure out, and I didn't quite look it up, is how they could see out of the costumes. That was one thing I, I couldn't I couldn't track either. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. We talked about Fraggle Rock, that the Gorgs, there was someone inside, and they had cameras in the eyes. Ah, uh, maybe so that's I how it I wonder worked. if that's what they mm. had in those so that the in-suit actors could see that. Because that's, that's a, I mean, Henson, again, those are his creations as well. So I have to wonder if he utilized that technology. 
And to make it even crazier, like a chunk of the film was filmed in North Carolina oh my in God. July. Oh God! So, oh. so it sounded like an absolute nightmare to wear those costumes. Like they'd lose pounds. Like there was one one thing I read where that where one of the actors basically just like freaked out and had to be taken out of the costume. Like it sounds horrible. Josh Pace, who played Raphael. He not only voiced Raphael, he's the only character who both voiced and was in the, he was the NSU performer. And he was getting claustrophobic from the outfit. Yeah, I think one of them lost like 20 pounds. (gasps) And the whole apparatus they were wearing, did you guys see how much that weighed, all that gear they had on? No. Mm -hmm. 60 pounds of gear, 60 pounds of gear. Oh my God. So they're in these heavy outfits they're in the foam rubber in North Carolina, sweltering summer heat and humidity. And apparently some of the uh, face animatronics were picking up signals from a nearby airport uh, control tower. <laughs> oh, <No>, what? <laughs> <laughs> and some of the apparatuses were breaking down. So, yeah, it was just not a fun time being inside that suit. Is, this, does it, is there a cut from this film where, like, I don't know, it's zoomed in on Raphael's face and it's like, uh, Alaska 495, you are clear for takeoff. And, like, the mouth and the eyes are moving. Like, <laughs> you have to wonder, like, did the control tower take control of the mouth and uh, facial awesome. expressions? That would have been hilarious. Be amazing. A very Chucky moment. Yeah, very oh terrifying. Oh, God. So the voice actors, Brian Tachi plays Leonardo. Josh Pace, as I mentioned, is Raphael. Robbie Rist as Michelangelo, Kevin Clash as Splinter, and most notably, Corey Feldman as Donatello's voice. You hear the voice, you gotta know if you know Corey. He's coming off his fame from what? Stand By Me, The Goonies, Lost Boys. You know, this is like peak Corey Feldman. And uh, Judith Hogue played April O'Neil. Elias Cotillas played Casey Jones. Uh, He looked like a young Robert De Niro. I actually was like, does Robert De Niro have a son? He looks so much like young De Niro. It was a little crazy. <laughs> David uh, McCharan played Orokusaki slash The Shredder and Michael McConaughey as Master Tatsu. I also clocked one of the extras. He wasn't actually had like a kind of a bit part in the movie. Yeah. Was a young Sam Rockwell. Like he was like a little baby Sam Rockwell. Really? Is like one of the like, I Wait, think. Sam Rockwell is. He's like in, uh, he was in Hitchhiker's Guide of the Galaxy. Um, Seven Psychopaths. He was in Iron Man 2. Yeah, Iron Man 2. Yeah. He like is one of the foot teenagers. Good catch. That's awesome. Yeah. And apparently, this is a very 90s name. Skeet Ulrich was in this movie. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> Do you remember that guy? He was yeah. around for like a decade and disappeared. I hope he's okay. Um, I hope he's yeah, okay. Like, <laughs> Well, seriously, <laughs> somebody should give him a call or right. something. Let's, let's if you're here, just sure let us okay. know. Just, just let us know where you're at. Here's the screen. You know right? what? Some people retire from fame. Some people go behind the camera. Some people go to stage acting. Like I just, I hope you're doing well, Skeet. And again, those are just the voices. There are people who are in suit performers. There are people doing all the animatronics uh, in the martial arts stunts. We don't want to give them short shrift, but we also don't just want to name seventy people. Right. And this was a movie that had no toy line. Why? Why did this have no toy line? Oh, that's weird. No, I don't know. Well, yeah, why is that? That's super weird. Playmates Toys refused to make toys off of this movie because of the violence and how dark it was. They did not want to be involved. But they did change their tune with the two sequels because a lot of that violence was toned down as a little lighter in tone. 
Interesting. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. That is truly for contemporary culture. We talk about the 90s. Gentlemen, thank you for going on this very long but important backstory. <laughs> thank you for allowing me a 1990s violation. I think it's time for chemistry class. Let's get away from this totally bummer history lesson and head to chemistry, <laughs> where I'm sure Donatello is cooking up some bodacious nostalgia potion Ooh. so we can relive our memories with this beloved and expansive franchise. What do you say? We got to get there fast. Okay, so we need that palate cleanser. We've drank our nostalgia potion, but we need to find out first and foremost there's four turtles here. Which one do you identify with oh, yeah. most? More importantly, we asked the class of 80s high, what's your favorite turtle? Or in one version of it, we asked which one is your spirit animal? So any guesses as to who rounded out the top of this questionnaire question from our classmates on Instagram, on our quiz? Who do you think is the most bodacious, the most loved dude of the turtles? I'll just tell you this. I don't want to spoil it because I, I saw the Instagram results. I was shocked at the results. Oh, okay. It's kind of hard because each of the turtles are like such different personalities that I feel sure. like they would. Uh, so it's hard to tell which one would be the most popular. Maybe like uh, Donatello. Was it Donatello? He was the least popular. Right? Uh, what? Very what shocking. The shell I thought Donatello about? would be way higher. No. I was going for the outsider, but yeah. Michelangelo. Yeah. Uh, okay. 45%. Nearly half the votes went to him. Donatello, only 10%. Yeah. And then Leo was 25 Raphael was 20%. So hmm. a little shocking, I think. I expected either like more of a mix, but I didn't think Donatello would rank so low. So how about, well, let's turn it on to us. Which ones do you guys identify with most? Ben, who's your spirit turtle? This is why it shocked me so much. Because, okay, and it's like, or are you a shredder man? Are you a shredder <laughs> man? Are you just, are you a villain? Are you throwing a curveball? Maybe, maybe a bebop? I'm a are be you a bebop? Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that's why it shocked me so much. Because I always loved Donatello. Donatello was my favorite. Also, because it was so easy to play pretend as him. You just grab like a mop. Or like a or wrapping paper tube, and you are Donatello. Sure, yeah. Oh yeah. But I love like one. the techiness and and just inventing was so great. And I feel like most of my friends, when I ever asked like who was your turtle or whatever, Donatello's. I knew a bunch of Donatello's. I was shocked he got destroyed. The curveball that I'll give yeah. you though for your answer, I want to be a Donatello, but I think I'm a Leonardo. Like, I'm always trying to get the oh. gang together to do stuff. And, you know, yeah. my wife and I are big rule followers. And you got to practice. You got to train. Yeah. Rehearsing. So I think that's the thing. I think, like, I, I want to be I want to be a Donnie. But I think I'm a Leo is, is, is the issue. And I think you have the fun, the fun spirit of Michelangelo. But he's undisciplined. And you're definitely more in the discipline yeah. category. Thank you. So I, I think like that's my where... Mikey when necessary. Yeah. I appreciate that. Sure, but there's a structure to your fun. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's great. I mean, that that is a, a sought-after skill in somebody who likes to create events. You gotta you gotta bring that crap together. You can't you can't be loosey goosey. I don't think anybody wants to hang out with me now. Now that it's very clear that I enjoy structured <laughs> fun. That doesn't actually sound fun to anybody. <laughs> uh, Corey, as our guest, what about yeah. uh, what about you, Corey? Sir? I'm like, without a question, Donatello. Yeah. Like I'm very, yeah. I always yep. like Donatello. I'm, I'm also very much a Donatello. I'm a software engineer. I'm a nerd. I, for some reason, I always like purple. And I don't know if 
It's hmm. because of Donat, which came first, Donatello oh, cool. or me liking purple. Yeah, um, yeah. Because I, I just didn't identify very well with any of the other turtles. Like, definitely not Michelangelo. I mean, maybe a little bit of a Leonardo, because I'm a real follower, too. Yeah. But um, he also seemed too much of a square, and he had two swords, which seemed so, like, like I could hurt myself with the sword or something. <laughs> uh, and, and you're right. The staff is, like, the easiest to, like, imitate, right? You right. get a broomstick. Yeah. You get a stick off the ground, and you're suddenly Donatello, right? That's true. And I never really quite understood size very well on how they even worked. So that always kind of threw me out with Raphael as well. So yeah, I'm I'm a totally a Donatello. And I know I know we're not a visual podcast, but I can see the Donnie coming through because so we're on a video chat right now. In the back, there's a model of the Saturn V rocket, a remote control to some kind of vehicle on top of what I think is a printer. So it's just surrounded by tech and engineering all around you right now. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. There's like a toilet car over here. It's 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 crazy. <laughs> the toilet taxi. Good. Okay. Good. The toilet taxi. Are, are, are you sitting on the toilet taxi for right this now. recording? That's yeah, the question. Exactly. <laughs> it's very efficient. Chris. You know, for me, I feel like Donatello is the one I like the most, or I identify with the most. I definitely have some Leonardo tendencies with a little bit of like, yeah. let's keep things kind of organized. And I sometimes have the uh, short fuse of a Raphael, so like I can see a little bit of that. <laughs> But I'd say it's more Donatello forward if we're using like uh, okay. <laughs> like wine tasting terms. Wine like Donatello yeah, forward. yeah, the sewers of Napa. I feel like I, I detect some notes of Raphael. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> notes of Raphael. but also like I, you know, I, I can be fun and extroverted sometimes. So it's like there's a little bit there. But if I had to say there's one that's the most, it's probably mostly Donatello, but maybe more of a, a mix of them all. Because I'm typically a middle of the road person in a lot of stuff. A little bit of a, a chameleon turtle. Interesting. I'm, wor- I'm wondering if that's like blend what with helps your makes the turtle so appealing. Is like there's a little bit of all the turtles in each of us. Like we can find a little bit in each turtle. That's yeah, right. I think that's some of the secret sauce or, or secret ooze Ooh, of, of the turtles. Exactly. exactly. Is it the, the different personalities? I mean, there's so many think kind of elements that I think work in the turtles, but I think part of it is that you know the four distinct personalities that people can identify with really help. Let's talk a little bit about our experiences with it. I mean, uh, I don't think anyone has an experience with the comic books, but you, Corey. Was this your entry into TMNT? Was that the first thing? Or did you start somewhere else and work your way back to the comic? Tell us about that. Yeah, totally. I did not read the comics back in the day. I, I, um, okay. I started with the cartoon because the art cartoon, again, was like 86, 87. So 87. I was, yeah, so the, the comics were a little old for me. Um, and I also remember, I, and I, I don't think I was quite into comics yet. It was a little, it was a little bit older when I got into the comics. And I do remember looking at the like turtle comics and being kind of put off by them because oh, they weren't anything like mm. the cartoon. They were black and white or, or maybe some more colorized, but again, they're like grittier and weirder and darker and all that kind of stuff. So it, it wasn't until, until I kind of revisited the comics that I got back into them, but I totally was into the cartoon the toys yeah and you played the NES game the original nes game yeah i remember being really excited to get the the NES game it must have been like my brother and i getting it and i remember sitting down and playing it and then like this sort of like creeping like oh no this is like not a good game it's like really (laughs) hard there's this notorious underwater level oh my god it was like the damn level and there's like electric seaweed that would, I think, kill you instantly yep. or kill you really quickly. A lot of damage. It was, and it was like a floaty thing. 
it was a, a hard game, a hard, frustrating game. It, it was buggy. I remember it like flickering a lot. It looked pretty good. It was like, it looked, especially for the time. But yeah, it was a disappointing game. That's for sure. And Ben, what was your earliest kind of introduction into TMNT? I think for me, it would have been the cartoon. I had this vague, and I, I failed to look this up to see if I could prove it or not. But some pizza joint, I'm going to guess this sounds like a Pizza Hut sort of thing, but had like a promo where like you got a Turtles VHS with a pizza. Like there was some sort of oh. season or period. If you ordered some kind of pizza at the right kind of time, you got a Turtles VHS. And I think that VHS was my intro to the Turtles, which I do remember on that VHS, it had the episode, um, the case of the killer pizzas, ironically, which like (laughs) you earlier mentioned about like an alien bursting out of the chest. It is like that Xenomorph ripoff. Like they fight Xenomorph ripoffs like we see in uh, Turtles in Time, the SNES video game later on. But uh, it is a very like monsters and pizza sort of episode. But yeah, I think that's how I got into it. And then it was sort of cartoons and toys parallel. I didn't play the video games much as a kid until the Super Nintendo. I didn't play the 80s games. Yeah, and for me, I the thing that's most salient in my mind are the action figures. I don't know if they came first, but I remember having and loving the action figures. And that's probably my biggest connection. I had to have watched the cartoon, though. I certainly watched the 1990 movie, saw it in the theater, I'm not a comics book person, so I don't have any connection there. But I know for sure I would have watched the cartoon. But those toys were huge. And then I didn't play the original NES game. I remember talking to you about it, Corey, because I remember, you know, again, we knew each other in fourth grade. That's probably right before the game came out, I think, is when we had met and started to become friends. So I remember hearing about it from you, probably going over to your house or whatever, uh, but didn't really get into the video games until that arcade game, which I loved. I was a big arcade kid, wasted many an hour and many a quarter in those arcades. There's a lot of aspects of this property you just listed off. We've got comics, we've got toys, we've got games, we've got the movies, we've got the TV show. Where do you want to begin with us? Where should we go? I think the popularization came from the cartoons. So are there any thoughts about the cartoon? Uh, did we rewatch episodes? I'll say I rewatched that five episode mini arc, which I only learned after the fact that that was the selling point for the toys. And that's the first season. Season one is just those five episodes. And then season two kind of starts in earnest. Like I said, it goes on for 10 seasons. Uh, We'll talk in contemporary culture, but the tone changes in the last three seasons. But I mean, we got to talk about with this cartoon, that crazy, crazy theme song. We've talked about it already. I don't think there's anything else to say about it, but it's just so much fun. Like we talked about in uh, Dino Writers, it gives you the exposition, but it's not a song. It's just a voiceover with visuals. And this is that perfect blend of both that is just an earworm. If Netflix came up and said, do you want to skip the intro? You'd be like, how dare you? No, you're asked to skip this intro. No, thank you. The theme song's great. And also that sequence was a little bit of a bait and switch for me too, because I was watching it and like the art, the animation's really good in that, in the theme song and then the turtles jumping around and doing yeah. stuff. And then you get into the show and it's like, all oh, the, <laughs> there's like a definite drop in the animation quality when you get to the show itself. Um, which is, like I said, I, I watched it with my girls and they noted like, oh, this animation's pretty rough. Even I, cause I watched the first episode and then I watched, like I said, sort of a random episode in season three. 
And they, the animation quality was kind of rough in both of those. Oh, it didn't get better? I was curious. I think, like, no. at least by season eight, because it changes, I think it gets a little better. But I, I didn't know throughout the, like, run if it steadily improved. Like, most cartoons seem to. But at least not by three, it sounds like. Yeah, but as a kid, like, I I, it, I didn't clock that at all. I, I thought that sure. the, the show was great and probably thought the animation was amazing and all that kind of stuff. One of the tropes that, I, that was in the cartoon and then also in the movie that I really love, it's one of my favorite, like, comic book tropes, is the, like, ridiculous-looking person, like a turtle or somebody in a <laughs> trench coat. Oh, yeah. And then that's, like, a disguise that would, would hide know. them from yeah. the world. Yeah. So you'd have, like, the thing from Fantastic Four or, like, maybe Incredible Hulk in a trench coat and or a Ninja Turtle. <laughs> and you would still be, like, freaked out by this Ninja Turtle in a, in a trench coat. I, that's one of my favorite tropes. Yeah, it's done really well in the movie, which I'd forgotten about, where Raph runs into Casey Jones. And, like, it wasn't until his hat came off, he's like wait, there's something different about you. And I'm like, come on, Casey, really? That's one of my, just, I love that trope. Although in the season three episode I watched, they were wearing the trench coat, but they were wearing like kind of scary looking human masks as well, which they look kind of creepy, but I was like, wow, they're like actually, I don't know, taking a note that a turtle would look ridiculous in a trench coat. They're trying, at least. They're trying, so I've yeah. Got, I've got a couple DVDs of, like, the early animated series, and I watched through just a few episodes for this. I, the one that really stuck out was, like, the creation of Baxter Stockman, like, the origin story of him. Watched that episode. But if we're talking yeah. animation quality, I'm going to say this, and I, I was scared to say this, because once I say this, you'll never unsee it in the animated show again. Okay. Nobody lives in New York City. <laughs> when the turtles are around the city, there is no traffic. There are no people walking around. It's just the turtles and the main characters. And I was like, where? This city has like 12 million people. Where is everybody? It's it's it, it was, it's a little off-putting. It's a little weird. Extras cost money, folks. We just can't <laughs> have time for that. <laughs> even in animation. Even in animation. But like with that, kind of like the real Ghostbusters, like the backgrounds, like get a little repetitive. That again, you know, it is yeah. it is a city, so it is you know skyscraper after skyscraper. I get that. Not a lot of music variation, at least in those early episodes that I watched. It was the same music over and over again. Yeah, and the only this is sort of a blend of animation and story writing is like there's a lot of continuity problems. And I know we're I know I feel silly having said that phrase, and we're talking about a turtles cartoon from the eighties. Yeah, but it is like you know there'll be a scene where like the party van's parked here, and then they'll cut and they'll cut back, and now it's like somewhere else in the city. And you're like, wait a second, they parked it there. Like, that kind of thing happens a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of that. I thought it did a pretty good job of, like, introducing the different characters and the lore of, like, Dimension X, this weird, mysterious dimension that Krang is from. And I always remembered that Krang was the boss that Shredder worked for, but there's kind of, like, a power struggle yeah, between them. Yeah, in charge? One was in charge, the other was, and they were they were kind of competing. It was like a cooperative competition between them, like who's going to get the upper hand. For some reason, I thought Krang, because he was the alien, he kind of came in and Shredder was sort of begrudgingly working for him. Yeah. But it seemed to be more of a like push-pull and the balance of power went back and it forth, which is more interesting than I thought it was. Uh, I remembered it being. The other thing from the cartoon, and you mentioned this with uh, Playmates, and Cord, you made a nod to this earlier about robots. Now, what do you guys think about how they tone down the violence for the cartoon from the comics? I mean, I think it was pretty smart to turn all the foot into robots, because then, because again, like, one of your characters carries two swords. Like, so right. there's only so much you can do when you're fighting humans with swords. Um, so I, I think it was pretty smart to do the, the foot as robots. Yeah. 
I just think it's like, it's so creative how they never kill or really hurt anybody. Like, it's either like everybody always gets knocked out or I don't know, like the, the, the trope of like six car tires, bloop, bloop, bloop. And now they're stuck in the middle of the six car tires, <laughs> you know, or like, you know, they're just always like trapped or stuck, but never, they like never really hurt anybody, which honestly as a writer has got to be like creatively challenging of like, how are they actually going to like incapacitate this person without breaking their neck? They are ninjas after all. Especially with characters that are, like, inherently violent yeah. as their core, right? right. <laughs> They're all about weapons and hitting things, which which makes it a little hard. And Ben, you sound a little bit bummed. Like, you, you wanted some, like, hack and slash murder. <laughs> you wanted, like, a turtle arm to be lopped off. Right. You wanted Shredder to be run through with the side. Precisely. It's not enough to sell toys to children. We need to also sell murder. Well, wholesale murder. I mean, that's a whole other episode we could do. But, like, that's, that's a lot of the properties we loved in the 80s matured with us you know batman got darker and darker and darker the marvel characters got darker and more serious like so i'm not gonna lie i do like a dark turtle uh dark turtle story and the funny is they 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 started out that way kind of and they signed which is which is interesting yeah it's definitely a different arc for sure And, and you know we'll talk about later uh eras of the turtles and different reinventions but i don't know that any of them go super dark but we can maybe the comics do we can kind of come back to that but um it's funny we talk about these sharp objects because there was a lot of fear and panic when this cartoon came out not in the united states for a change although parent groups did get roll up in arms about kids on the playground beating each other up but the united kingdom uk oh ninja was like a bad word. Ninja had a terrible connotation. There, I don't know. There's like a ninja panic. Maybe we had like reefer ninja madness panic. in the fifties. We had satanic panic in the eighties. I guess they had ninja panic. <laughs> so it was retitled awesome. Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. Oh right, yeah. I forgot about <laughs> and that. And the I UK heard that. and some other European markets, which is so funny to me. Like that word was triggering somehow. I could see, like, if it was in Japan and they're like, you're misusing this term, there are traditions to Japanese martial arts that you're you're just trampling on, yeah. how dare you? No, it was just in the UK. So that was odd. And then, so obviously, if there's a weapon people were concerned about, it'd be these blades, right? No one wants a siren. It's a stabbing weapon. We can't have slicing katanas, right? Those are the worst weapons, right, guys? Uh, yeah, I mean, right? they're, yeah. they're swords. Most Come dangerous. On. Oh, no, we don't care about those. Uh, not, not to mention the fact that kids can go find knives in their kitchens. No, we are worried about nunchucks. Oh There's God. nothing worse in the UK at this time than a stick tied to another stick by a rope or chain. That was the worst kind of weapon. So much so when this cartoon came over to European markets, they basically erased the nunchuck. So he's running around just like carrying a scroll. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> Which is so weird. But eventually they didn't want to make these different versions. So in later seasons, Michelangelo no longer has nunchucks. Do you guys know what his weapon was changed to? Uh, it's like a pizza sigh. I don't know. It's like a little blade with a hand. You can hold on to it, but it's sharp. A grappling hook. So he's seen what? like with a grappling hook. It almost looks like a turtle yo-yo, but he, so he's using that in later seasons. He completely loses the nunchucks in the I didn't know that original cartoon series. Yeah, this rang a little memory for me, but I'd forgotten about it. It's just so funny to me though that swords and staves, staffs, stabs. What's the what's the proper staffuses? Yeah, stavi were the two easiest things kids could reproduce. You grab a broom and you smack someone in the face. 
a nunchuck is like hard to reproduce. What would you do? Two toilet paper rolls with right. like yarn? Like, it's, <laughs> what are you going to no do? No could have pulled this off, but apparently real nunchucks can go like 88 meters a second or 316 sure. kilometers an hour. Like you, the tip of that thing can get rocking and rolling, but your point, if you've got a piece of string and two toilet paper rolls, <laughs> it's not going to do any damage. Nunchucks are the weapon that you're most likely to hurt yourself with. Ooh, yeah. Because okay. you're, you're spinning around and you don't know what you're doing. And I, I imagine there were multiple broken noses from the uh, Ninja Turtles people pretending to be Michelangelo. But where would you get a nunchuck reproduction from? I mean, you take a stick and you, and you duct tape <laughs> and some rope to another right. stick and you got a you're nunchuck. Right. Like there, there it's, okay. that episode of South Park where all the kids snuck into a gun show and they got ninja weapons. And then started fighting with each other. You can get him in there at, a, at that, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you guys are on to something. I just, it's funny to me that they had an issue with that, but actual bladed slicing weapons, wild. not that some groups weren't put off by that, totally. but it wasn't banned in the UK like this. And eventually, in, in later years, the reproductions went back to nunchucks, but it, that was just so comical to me. The last thing I want to say about the cartoon, real quick, is just the ridiculousness of how not sneaky the turtles are, that they have such mm. incredibly large and loud vehicles. You've got the party wagon. What are you talking about? With a giant boombox plane? What are you talking about? That's stuff. Blimp was my favorite. Is this one of the episodes giant I Giant green blimp. Is they're like sneaking up in this blimp on Krang and Shredder on a rooftop. And they're like, how do you... Well, it helps. If no one lives in the city, you don't have to be sneaky. That's what... They, okay, I figured it out. That's what it is. I mean, there you go, There's Ben. No There's nobody outside. There's no one outside. Who's going to say? Okay, I answered my own yeah. question. I feel better now. Ghost town of New York City. Absolutely. <laughs> so No, it's silly. a great point. Like, they're they're built on stealth. Like, or at least in... I don't know if they, like, come out of the sewers and their shells in later seasons but like the whole thing was about stealth and you're right they're they're flying these loud green vehicles they're driving so these like crazy loud hot rod vw vans everywhere and chasing monsters and gangs of foot clan it's just it's it is kind of it's silly. ridiculous yeah i love it uh the toys jess oh, yeah. let's talk about the toys a little bit these toys are awesome what toys do you remember having I remember having the OG toys and I don't, I remember distinctly not having all of them. I think I, I, I for sure had Donatello and I feel like I had Leonardo and maybe Raphael. Maybe I didn't have Michelangelo. Yeah. Okay. Because he had the very dangerous weapons. It was the nunchucks. The nunchucks, yeah. yeah. I lived in Britain at the time and he was. <laughs> <in Britain. laughs> no, I didn't. Um, I don't think I had any of the vehicles because I, I just wasn't as invested in the toys as I, I was more of like a G.I. Joe toy kid, yeah. but like yeah. I did have those action figures and I played with them a lot, but I, I do distinctly remember not having all four of them, but they, okay. I think that's it. I basically just had the OG ones. I think I had actually, I do remember having Usagi Yojimbo, who's like a rabbit, oh, like yeah, an anthropomorphic rabbit, yeah. rabbit mm. who is actually another from another comic series that were like the creator was friends with Kevin Eastman and Laird. Um, it's another black and white comic back from the eighties. Hmm. So I remember having him, and maybe a couple of the like villains and stuff, but yeah, that, that's about all I had. Okay, Ben, what did you have? Uh, well, good. I have twenty-two paper Sorry, bags. What do you have? Is maybe the better question. No, I've learned my lesson. I'm going to make this much more efficient and much less annoying this time. But I did hold on to a number of the toys as a kid, and I didn't have. A, I don't have a massive collection like I do with Ghostbusters and Jurassic Park, but it's respectable. I've got eight turtles, one enemy, and five vehicles. The, the, okay. the sad part about the vehicles. I did have the blimp. 
I did. Oh. And all I can find are the bombs. I've got oh. the little orange bombs that would drop off the side of the blimp. And there's a picture I dropped in the chat of me getting it for my birthday, I think, with a, with a Ninja Turtles thermos and a Ninja Turtles lunchbox. It's a pretty big toy. It's a very big toy, but it's all air. It's a balloon and one little plastic vehicle. So it was actually, you know, it was easy for a little kid to manage. Sure, yeah. But based on the toys that I could dig up out of the chambers here, uh, I played with these toys hard. They are all broken in one way or another, and nary a weapon to be seen. I'm wondering if my parents like read the playmate oh. script and were like, "We're taking the we're taking the weapons away." I don't know what happened. No <laughs> weapons. But I've got I've got OG Leonardo here who's missing everything, including his right forearm. He's really really <laughs> got in for it. Sliced off. My whole collection, most of it is from the 80s, which is kind of exciting. The 80s toy line of the turtles. Uh, I've yeah, got I've got a uh, sewer swimming Don whose head pops in and out, which is kind of fun. Ooh. Nice. Uh, another lost mystery here. I've got Krang's legs. So I've got the robot Ooh. chair that Krang rode in, but I have no idea where Krang himself is. No Krang. No Krang. Wow. I totally remember that toy. I feel like maybe I had that. Somebody I knew had that. Right? I don't know. I had like a yeah. little capsule that he sat yeah. inside and he sat right there. Uh-huh. Maybe I had that. The other that. two, in season one, when we were starting to befriend and understand the ecosystem of other 80s pop culture podcasts, the wonderful podcast, The Cool Kids Club, mailed me Mike the Sewer Surfer. That's right. Who was a 1990 edition, sort of like a bath toy Mike party sewer guy. But the last the prize of my collection that made it is actually a 1988 toy, and it's a vehicle. I loved this thing, and I'm so glad it survived. The Knucklehead Vehicle. Which is kind of Whoa. like a robo spider. It looks like a spider slayer from the 90s Spider-Man. Yeah. Um, but it, you had this little crank here that you could raise and lower this vehicle with its eight legs to go down. But then huh. it's, it's got a spring-loaded... Tra- this is a Foot Clan vehicle, but it's got a spring-loaded trap here. So if the turtle goes in, it gets trapped. It gets clutched. It gets grabbed. By the arms. Nice. So I loved these. I think That's my, cool. my friend Peter had a collection, a good collection as well, and so we could sort of supplement together and, and hang out and play Turtles together. And I do remember kind of a spinoff of this, kind of like you guys talked about uh, in the introduction of Corey, a lot of imaginative play in the forest around our neighborhood. A lot of pretend, we're the Turtles, we're going to go fight the foot, you know, we'll be back by dinner, Mom, I promise, that kind of thing. Yeah, I remember doing that too. I'm sure Chris and I did that quite a few times of like playing the Turtles. It, it wasn't like the thing we did the most, but I distinctly remember being Turtles. Well, I talked about this on other episodes, Corey. I remember we would merge the toys. So we had like Turtles merge with Batman toys and merged with real Ghostbusters toys. That's awesome. Yeah, because they're all the same size, roughly. All the same size. They could all fit in the vehicles kind of interchangeably. And I remember, and like if we had He-Man, like the He-Man figures would also kind of fit there too. But like everything in that size range, I remember we just do these mashups of like epic stories of like the Joker fighting the turtles, fighting Mm -hmm. Batman, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, it was a lot of fun. So for these, I had, I'm pretty sure all of the turtles. Nice. I think I had Splinter. I remember him because the... His shawl or robe was actual cloth. It It wasn't just like, it wasn't like plastic. That's special to find. I played a lot of this with my childhood friend, Nathan. He was like, Nathan and I have known each other or knew each other, I should say, since we were born, basically. Like our parents were friends and grew up. So I I knew Nathan forever. We've, We've fallen apart, but Nathan and I would play a ton of this stuff. And I know he had a lot of these too. This is one of those where the memory, it could have been his toy, but we merged them so much. But I know I had the party wagon. Because I loved that freaking vehicle. You had, I remember your party wagon. You that was cool. had the party wagon? So cool. 
Yes, it was so much fun. What? So like matching up the party wagon with the Ecto-1, and I had the Foot Cruiser, which is that cool convertible oh, yeah, that yeah, the yeah. Foot Clan had. I love the vehicles. They were so cool because they looked normal, but they were like, you could do car chases and like crazy stunts and flip them up in the air and all sorts of wacky stuff. Pretty sure I had Bebop and Rocksteady, uh, as well as one of the foot soldiers. I you think had- Nathan had Krang, that one that you oh, had. Oh, yeah, 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 then, the legs. But with the actual uh, creature in it. And then there were some weird side characters. Like there was a duck that was like a fighter ace. Oh, yeah, I can picture the yeah, I can picture the figure. I think he had Leatherhead, and I think he had the fly version of Baxter Stockman. I love the – that toy was Ooh, awesome. Ooh, I forgot about him. That's what I remember of the toys. And again, I would always mix and match. It wasn't just one property together. It was fun to interchange them all. And I probably had them all in the same box or carry bag that I would take around when I wanted to, to play with these figures. A, there's a very impressive collection. I feel like every time on the show when we've talked about toy collections, you were like, I never had those. Or I had one or two. You had a legit Turtles collection. Very impressive. One of my bigger collections. Not the biggest, but one of the bigger ones I had. Yeah. And I think the other thing is just so emblematic of the Ninja Turtles toy line. We all just mentioned different toys that each of us also didn't have, but we know what they are. Like so many of even the minor toys were so iconic of the time that you knew the rabbit and you knew you knew the the surfer turtle uh, the surfer frogs you can picture them because they were just like the best toys then they were so good was there a toy you really wanted but didn't have the blimp looked really cool and yeah. i remember wanting the, bl- the blimp I, I feel like i knew somebody that had the blimp because i distinctly remember it but i never had it and it, it that was really a cool, cool one that's on my list too ben were there any of that you were like Desperate to have as a kid? Sort of just generally speaking, like, I don't feel like I, it was like the white buffalo. I never knew anyone who had a base. I don't think I knew anyone who had either the Technodrome or the Turtles sewer base. And, you know, of any action figure collection, the base is the Grand Mama Jamma to get your hands on. And I, I, yeah. I don't think I ever knew anyone who had one of those. And although I generally favored the heroes in my collection, if I could have gotten a Technodrome, oh my God, that it would have been amazing. That was a really cool playset. I would say on the on the bad side, the villain side, the Technodrome was probably the best. Like the sewer yeah. playset sounds interesting, but you can't really do much with it. The fact that the Technodrome is a vehicle kind of opens up a lot of cool stuff. Right. And, and the thing that's different about the Firehouse and Ghostbusters is you could drive the Ecto through it or any cars through it. So it could be played with more than like a kind of surface level thing and then the sewer underneath, but it just wasn't big enough to like really integrate well at either level, if that makes sense. Yeah. And the firehouse too, like the Ghostbusters firehouse is just striking. It looks realistic. It looks like yeah. you're setting up a little city, yeah. right? Yeah. Like the sewer, and it's not quite the same, yeah. right? You got the fire pole, you've got the containment unit. Like mm-hmm. it just had so much cool stuff in it. Yeah. And then it could fit into anything else when you're playing turtles or whatever else. It yep. just, it slid right into other things. The other one, just real quick, is the pizza shooter vehicle. Like the vehicle that you would load little plastic pizzas in the top and then like, you could shoot them out. I remember that one. That was was like a definitely get your parents to yell at you kind of thing. Like, stop shooting your little brother, like with the pizza shooter. That thing was awesome. So we did ask the class of 80s high if they had a favorite or most desired Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle toy. And so we got some of these answers here that probably aren't surprising. We got the blimp. Never had it, but so cool. Also, the Technodrome playset. Super great. 
Uh, we had the Samurai Michelangelo and Usagi Ojimbo action figures, Corey, that you mentioned. I always wanted Splinter, but I never achieved that goal. Thanks, Mom and Dad. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> this is funny. My favorite figurines growing up were the ooze-infected trinity of Taka, Razar, and Super Shredder from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze. I don't remember these. Do you guys know what this was? I can picture the action figures. Yeah, I vaguely remember Razar, like he was like a snapping turtle or something like oh, that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and Toga's like a Toga's a dog, I think, that got turned with the ooze. But the action figures just looked even crazier and weirder than the line that was out at the time. And so it was, you know, it was very desirable. And then we had one response, which was all of them, of course, obviously. Duh. And even though I only ever had a small number of the action figures, I definitely had all four turtles and some accessories in their own separate place. They were too special to commingle. So a little bit from the class. A few more things to talk about in chemistry. So uh, do we have any thoughts on, I mean, we can talk about any of the later incarnations, but I think like the 1990 movie is one that we should really talk about here. I need to get into it. So, okay. It sounds like you have hot takes. What is it? Go, go, go. Well, here's the thing. I just want to I just want to start up front. This movie is flipping awesome. I love the 1990s oh, okay. movie. I, I, you, know, you do this to me where you're like, listen here. And I'm like, oh, like you can't see him. He's like shimmying in his chair. And I'm like, oh, no, here we go. No, it's okay. it's so right. good. And it's definitely a movie. And it's a short list of movies. It's probably less, fewer than 20. That like it's a still a go to for me to this day where I'm like ah it's late on a Saturday what do I feel like watching <gasps> oh that's right turtles and I'll put the movie on I think the movie's super fun and the two I got I mean I got a bunch of takeaways I mean I love my favorite quote of it is cricket nobody understands cricket you got to know what a crumpet is to understand a cricket <laughs> when Raphael meets uh, Casey Jones love that so good so good but the two things I think are amazing in this movie is one. It does such a great setting of New York and what's what's it like. I think it's a great time capsule if you're like, what was New York like in the in the late 80s? Just go watch. Number like, one, it had people. So many people. <laughs> there were residents. And vehicles. <laughs> but it's just it's just a fun like shooting around the city. It's just like shots of people going around their life like at night, New York City. But it's just like it's a great setting. Like they did mm. such a good job setting it up. I love that. But the other part, and this is this is the big talk that I need you guys to, like pizza, okay? I like pizza. I like pizza a lot. And I'm gonna say, here's the bold claim I'm gonna make. Oh okay. I think pizza is such a popular American food because of the Ninja Turtles. That's the claim I'll Ooh. make. Hmm. What okay. other food that is so common in our diet was popularized so much in any cartoon or TV show you can think of? Possibly. I mean, there might, I mean, pizzas did start to get more popular in the 80s. Like, I think Pizza Hut that, like helped with popularizing that too. But I mean, the turtles probably helped a lot for sure. Yeah. The other funny thing in the cartoons, they would have, the, the, the thing I clocked re- watching it recently is they had like ice cream pizza. It was like, it was like cheese and vanilla ice cream yeah. or it'd be like, like pepperoni and gummy bears or something like that, which I, I thought was great. Yeah, they had like a morning pizza they were pouring cereal onto. So they definitely like the joke was like more gross, weird combos Mm -hmm. in the cartoon. But like in that movie, in this movie that we're talking about, it's pretty much just straight up pizza. In fact, there's a whole scene where the delivery guy from Domino's. Domino's actually won the bidding war for this one. Pizza Hut was usually a sponsor, but 
Domino's got this one. You know, it's the whole like pizza dudes got 30 seconds. Like he's just right. sitting there in the sewer grate. <laughs> like there's so many lines from this movie. As soon as I heard them, because I had this weird knack for remembering movie lines. I've forgotten a lot of them, but as soon as I heard them, they were immediately familiar. Like it triggered something in my brain. It was like, oh, yep. Oh, yep. Like you, you got to know crumpet the right. to know cricket, like that line. They're all celebrating in April's apartment after some big fight and they're all doing those lines. And one of them does yeah. like perestroika. And it was like the word they throw out. That's a good one. Yeah, oh. there's just like, there's so many like great little lines. There's even like Splinter at the end is like, I made the funny. Like that oh, one yeah. like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, struck yeah. me as a memory. It was like, oh yeah, it's, I agree. It was just delightful. The voices are great. I was afraid of Uncanny Valley. The animatronics were fantastic. The fight scenes were good. The story moved. There wasn't really a down point. Like on the farm, it's a little bit slower. I think it's intentionally that. But it wasn't too bad. I forgot that whole side story with like April's boss and the sun joining the foot. Yeah, right. Like all of that. And like poor Splinter being tortured and all that kind of stuff. It's intense. But yeah, ultimately I was like very impressed on how well it held up. And Corey, you had a similar experience and you watched it with your daughters, right? I watched it with my oldest daughter and it, it held up super well. And my daughter really liked it. She thought it held up really well too. Nice. Again, the costumes are amazing and they still they still hold up really well. And like you said, the story moves. There's no like nonsense. It's like a pretty straightforward. Yeah. There's no, no, no weirdness into the story. I think it's like a perfectly targeted movie for like, a 10 year old boy. Like it, mm. it's, yeah. it's a little silly. It's a little jokey. It's a little dark. It has a little bit of an edge to it. And it holds up super well. I, 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 I had a really fun time watching it. And I remember liking it as a kid too. And a little bit of explicit language, which I had forgotten about, like mm. Raphael's damn in it. Like, I, but oh, again, yeah, like right. coming off of the like pristine child friendly cartoon. I mean, damn is not a bad word in my opinion, yeah, it's but it's definitely not a, for one of our heroes to scream that into the New York night, I was like, oh, okay. Like, that was pleasantly surprising to me. I was like, okay, yeah, there was a little more edge to this version. Oh, 100%. And you mentioned you mentioned the master earlier, um, Jim Henson. What's amazing about those puppets seeing in the movie is they don't look like Fraggles. They don't look like Muppets. They don't look like yeah. Skeksis or anything else from the Dark Crystal. He really created something physically original and but really yeah. you know was stayed so true to the form and function in the comics and the cartoon totally 100 percent, great point a really amazing execution by him and his team for sure absolutely a very surprising revisit uh i don't think the next two movies in the series held up as well no not so much I was tempted. I was. Re- I really wanted to watch the the ninja rap. I was real tempted to, uh, to visit the secret of the use, but I, I didn't get around to it. Did you Ben? Did you watch any of the other movies? So I will say, secret of the use is is like next tier on that. And I'll watch that again. List. I watch secret of the use maybe every couple of years or so. It's fun, but it really ups the ridiculousness. It's really, really freaking silly. It's super silly, yeah. but I'm not gonna lie, like. When we were kids, everyone sang "Go Ninja, Go Ninja, Go!" go. Ninja, like you go. did the ice, the vanilla ice rap ninja, for sure. Ninja rap. So I mean, it's it's fun, but it's it's absolutely bonkers, and it just doesn't like have the perfect balance and pacing that the first one does. 
So we've talked a little bit about the video games. I, I am chemistry. just want to do a rundown of all of the video games so we can talk about more some of our favorites if we want to. But rather than try to sprinkle them in later, because there are kind of like a, a sub version of all of these. And there's <laughs> much like there's 400 action figures. There are over, by my count, 100 games oh, featuring wow. Ninja Turtles mostly as the main cast, but sometimes as like a smash-up kind of compilation of different characters. Yeah. There's about 25 based off the original cartoon series, 27 off the 2003 cartoon oh series, God. 36 off of the third series that starts in 2012. It's unnecessary. A few from the movies and later versions. There's some based off the 2007 movies, hundreds of them. But I think most iconically is that original run that are more or less based off that cartoon series we know and love. So I want to talk a little bit about some of those. And I also want to talk about the most recent game that came out, which is very much a throwback homage to the original Konami games, which is... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, colon, Shredder's Revenge. Yeah. That came out just this year because both of you have gotten a chance to play it. Before we go to that, we've talked about the arcade game, the NES game. Are there any others out there that really stood out to you guys? I'll say this much. I love Turtles in Time, which is kind of like a sequel to the arcade version of the game because you're going through different time periods. Ben, you mentioned fighting, not Xenomorphs, Xenomorphs (laughs) in the sewer level. One of my favorite ones is you're on a train in the old West and you're fighting like crocodiles and everything. I love that one. Yeah. Uh, are there other video games that you guys really liked, played, want to talk about? It was mainly for me, the original NES and the arcade one. And I do remember playing a little bit of Turtles in Time. Was, was that an arcade game as well? Uh, I don't know if there's an arcade version. I played it on Super Nintendo. I don't know yeah. if there's an arcade yeah, version, sure actually. So mainly it was just the NES and arcade game for me. I don't and and I played a little bit of the Shredder's Revenge, which is it's just like a total throwback to the original arcade. Even with a little bit of the kind of somewhat frustrating mechanic, you know, like you don't oh. always hit the guy right. It, it, it felt a little bit like that, but it was just very true to the original. Okay, Ben. I guess just at the top of all the Turtles games that ever came out, it was Turtles in Time for me. I just loved that. That game was awesome. You know, Super Nintendo was really like my first major console, and I loved playing it on the console. It was, you know, multiplayer, which is always like a huge deal. I loved that there was multiplayer. It was so fun. You know, there's so much classic, uh, you know, Big Apple, 3 a.m. All starts off. The music was so tight. And actually, Chris, I don't know if you remember this, but that was in the before times, you and myself and two other friends 100%ed that game one afternoon on one of our, our winter trips. We sure did. It was a great throwback. We had so throwback. much fun revisiting. Yeah. I love that game. But so I, I did do my homework, and Corey, you said you had played through them, but the OG, so the first Turtles game on the NES, memories, thoughts, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I mentioned this a little earlier. Yeah, I just remember being really disappointed uh, how hard it was. The, it also had some really weird, there was like a weird top down, like you drove the turtle van around. Right, yeah. Which there was like a map level that was very strange. It just, it was ultimately just disappointment because it was just harder and weirder than I wanted it to be as of what a nine-year-old when it came out and i wanted a little little bit more fun and it just and it was a little bit hard and it's kind of notoriously hard yeah and did it not have like foot clan or like aren't a lot of the baddies not really even in it like, the like make weird no ghosts sense. and creatures the yeah. enemies are super weird they're monsters and bats yeah exactly 
That just seems like a missed opportunity. It's not super tied to the cartoon as much. It's a disappointment kind of all around. I don't remember even playing it for all that long, which is which is a blow when you you know you only got like one game every once in a while, and you and you get a game that kind of stinks. It, yeah, it, it's, it, it's pretty rough. You know, it kind of reminds me of Mario 2. That was like a different game yeah. that they're like, we need something. Let's just rebadge this as a Mario game. And it feels canonically weird. It's almost like somebody at Konami was making a different game and they're like, quick, make it a Turtles game and get it out the door. Because you don't have any of these iconic characters. Or I mean, yeah, you got the turtle van, but like you said, it's top down. It could have been anything. That's what it feels like to me. I don't have any proof that happened, but that that's the feeling of it. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some reskinning going on there. Sure. So it was very coincidentally, like maybe three or four months ago, I found this 30-minute long YouTube video. And I really don't like watching other people play video games. I prefer to play video games myself. But um, it was this streamer named Ryu. His whole thing is like debunking how hard old school games used to be. And he'll stream playing them and he crush. He's ridiculously good. And he did the original Turtles. And I watched the video and I was like... I think I could do this. Like, I'm, this makes sense. I get it. I see what he's saying. I think I could do this. Nope. I cannot do that. Uh, I played it. <laughs> Corey, you mentioned I made it all the way to the water level, which I was proud of both on difficulty and because the map with the turtle van makes no sense. Like, it's not clear between sewer drains and doors on buildings what's, like, the next level. Like, where you're supposed to be going. I found, like, a couple exploits. Like, uh, if you move out of a space, everything reloads in it including health. So you can like, there's some exploits where you can keep getting pizza and like get your health back up. Mm. I like the mechanic that you can switch between all four turtles whenever you want. Like that's kind of cool. Holy crap. Is it hard though? Especially the water level is insane. It's like swimming, sinking. Like you said, there's electricity coming down. There's stinging kelp. I feel like if you practice it, like those old NES games, if you played it over and over and over again, you got the muscle memory, you memorized the pattern. I think it's actually doable. I was actually kind of intrigued. I just ran out of time. I just don't think people have that patience anymore. Like no. there's so much out there like for that gameplay that's that's no longer tolerated is that kind mm-hmm. of design. Yeah, right. You know, it's kind of what we had back then, but now that there's better game design, it's like this that is just not tolerated in a modern game. And so yeah. it makes yeah. it really hard to go back to those old ones where you're like, I could master this, but why? <laughs> you but, know? Yeah. That was like a purposeful thing too, was difficulty extended gameplay time and that was part of the design like there's not as much content there so if it's difficult and you have to keep replaying it we don't have to make as much yep 100 yeah you guys both mentioned also if we're talking about the 80s properties the arcade game so what do you remember the arcade game i just remember loving it i love the interactive environment i love that vehicles came out and people jumped out the sewer grate and threw it at you i love that you could fall down into it you could climb up on an awning and grab pizza uh you could play it with up to four people it was just fun it felt like you were in an episode of the cartoon and like Corey, you mentioned it played the music. So even if you're walking through the mall and you walk by the movie theater and you heard it in the arcade out front, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you're like, mom, can I get 50 cents? Like it was just, it was so much fun. I loved it. It was great. That was the big thing for me. It felt like you were playing the cartoon because it looked so much like the cartoon. The graphics were amazing. It felt like you were in the show, which is which is what I wanted and what I did not get from the NES game. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So I played this one for my research as well. And I'm going to say something that rarely I ever say on this show. I loved this as a kid. I did not like replaying it. I loved beat-em-ups. That was like my jam, whether it was 
Golden Axe or Pirates of Dark Water or Final Fight or even like Aliens vs. Predator. I loved, we're going to walk to the right and punch anything that gets in our way. Like, I loved that. That was great. And it's challenging and it's, the art design is great. I recognize that it was like a huge leap in gaming at the time. But man, trying to play it now, I just kind of got bored just going to write and fighting the same enemy models. Mm. I think if I was playing with friends, if I was in an arcade with like three friends or even on a Nintendo with at least one more friend, it'd be a lot more fun to work together and like help and do that. But just by yourself playing a beat-em-up, I, it just lot. I didn't, it, ugh, it didn't have the shine for me anymore. No, I think that's the enjoyment of those games for sure. And we've talked about some of the other ones, Simpsons, X-Men, like you could play them single player, but like you and your friends playing together, or even strangers who walk up and want to play at the same time, like that was part of the enjoyment of those games is you got all of the different power-ups and interactions and like in some games, you can even combine forces. And like, that was the cool part of it. So yeah, I could definitely see a solo run being kind of lackluster. Yeah, yeah, That was kind of my feeling of playing that remake. At the, was it Shredder's Revenge or whatever? Oh, yeah. Shredder's Revenge. And I kind of had that same feeling of like, oh, yeah, this feels very authentic to the experience. But I also don't really like this gameplay all that much anymore. It just It's a little repetitive, a little annoying. Yeah. Corey, did you play with anybody? No, I just kind of played it. I thought maybe I'd play it with the kids, but I just... It, I bounced off of it enough that mm-hmm. I'm like, ah, no, I'll just play something else. And Ben, you played it recently. Did you play with others? Yeah, so Shredder's Revenge came out in June 2022, and I talked Pete and Mikey into getting it as well. And Mikey got a friend to come in. So you can play up to six people at a time. So you get all four turtles. You can also be April and Splinter all together on the same screen. You can actually unlock Casey Jones, too. Oh, apparently. you can? That's yeah. awesome. So it's online play. You can have a huge group of people. And it's, it reminds me a lot of both that arcade and Turtles in Time. Like, it's that classic art, but it's polished somehow. I don't know how to say it. But to Corey's point, like, we played it one night because we all got together. And it's something that I have no interest in playing again unless I'm going to play with people I know. That's what makes it fun. It's a party game. Yeah, I think that's a good point. That kind of game, it's, it's like fighting games too. Like I was big into like Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat and all those. Yeah. They were kind of situated and suited for arcade. And once consoles caught up and became more popular and they became the front runners of everything, like that style of game just doesn't hold the same value anymore because games are so much more expansive and frankly better. And there's more content there. It's not just the, the repetition just, again, it doesn't hold for a modern audience. So I love that they made this homage and apparently they got the voice actors from the 87 series to reprise their roles. That's so awesome. Which is super cool. But yeah, I I think it's just, there's limited, like it hits the nostalgia button, but beyond that, it's just, it doesn't have much leg. Yeah. And and despite what I've just said about the arcade game and Shredder's Revenge, in August out came the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Cowabunga Collection, which has 13 of the oldest games on it. So like that late 80s, early 90s collection. I'm not going to lie. It is on my radar. I do really want to pick it up for Switch, <laughs> be able to play those. Again, It's Switch is a great party system locally and have friends over and, and play yeah. if come. Could be fun. Yeah, scratch that itch when it comes up, you know? Yeah, for sure. So we've talked about some of our favorite games. We did also ask our classmates. We had some votes for the original NES game. By far, people love the arcade game that we've been yeah. talking about. Yeah, look at not that. surprising. Turtles in Time also had a showing. We had a lot of games that just didn't get any uh, any votes. And then there was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, the Manhattan Project on the NES, which I did not remember this game, but I think it's another beat-em-up side-scroller. Uh, but that was a write-in that one of our... Yeah, I forgot about that. Again, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't list 100 games on our survey. No one that would, would ever just take be, 
mind-bending. But by far, most people really identified that arcade game. Again, I just think it was such a big hit yeah. uh, across the globe. One thing that I think would be funny to talk about is we love talking about knockbusters on this show and how sometimes imitation is the saddest form of flattery. And certainly there are a lot of ridiculous imitations, knockbusters, trying to cash in on that TMNT dollar. Corey, you said you had found a couple that I think are in comic book form. What, what do you got? What are some of the the brilliant parodies here? Oh my God. Yeah, so back in the 80s like that, I, I talked about that. There was a boom in like black and white comics after the turtles and there were a bunch of knockoffs. So, and, and a lot of them are great. So there's the adult thermonuclear samurai elephants. Wow, is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, on the, all these are pretty on the nose. They're, wow. The Adolescent Radioactive Black Belt Hamsters, which is pretty good. I'd read Amazing. It. The one that I think is the best is the preteen Dirty Jean Kung Fu Kangaroos. What? Poetry. Pretty Poetry. solid there. Wow. No aardvarks have come up yet? There were a huge list more, but those were the kind of the ones I pulled off that, that were the best. Yeah, I had a couple more. Immature Radioactive Samurai Slugs. I <laughs> found that one. And Snailians, supersonic shell fighters. Whoa. And I think that's only scratching the surface, but I mean, I think you get the idea. It's what shuffle of the four words can we come up with? Well, there were a couple big ones too. There was like Biker Rats from Mars, which was like in the 90s, a a comic show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or biker, yeah, biker mice from Mars. There was Battle Toads, which is pretty, yeah, pretty, that's pretty which clear knockoff. After turtles, yeah, right. And then also Street Sharks were were, were pretty, um, oh. pretty turtle reminiscent. Do you as mean well. were they pretty jawsome? Oh. Yeah. Was Jabber Jaws <laughs> featured in that one? Oh my God. <laughs> I'm gonna moody. That's Jabber Jaws. He was like their Charlie, and they were the Charlie's Angels. He was he was giving them directions. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, so great knockbusters out there. To close out chemistry class, uh, we do want to talk a little bit. We want one last shout out from the class of 80s high about their TMNT memories or opinions they care to share. Open mic to the listeners. What do they think about this show? So classmate Rowden, Rudin, sorry if I mispronounced that, lover of Donatello has this to say about their memories. It's one of the few actual 80s memories I have watching friends play the NES Turtle game and how ridiculously hard it was. And I got to tell you, Corey and I used to like play games and watch each other play. We had a great epic run of uh, Super Mario Brothers 3. There was something fun about that, just watching other people play when it wasn't a co-op game. So I hear you. All right, what else we got? Classmate Pizza Dude, who identifies as a Donatello. Mm. said, the original TMNT NES game is basically the OG. They said, are there enough acronyms in there? Yeah, that's good. TMNT NES OG. <laughs> but it's, it's so hard that the arcade game wins on playability. This has to be one of the oddest cultural phenomenons of the era. Coming from a violent indie comic to be a mainstream staple, I still find the whole thing oddly enjoyable. Mm. Agreed. Totally. Absolutely. So classmate Rasputin, the Mad Frog. Oh, yeah. Making a comeback. Punk Frog identifies as a Michelangelo and has this to say. Ever wonder why the turtles have the weapons they do? So the lure is this, that Splinter gave these different weapons to his sons to reflect their personalities and teach them some of the greatest lessons they had to learn about themselves. So the secret meaning is more or less this. So here's in a nutshell, because they provided a link for us. 
that Raphael is the most hot-headed and violent, so he wields sighs, which are traditionally a defensive weapon, to teach him patience and discipline. Mm. Michelangelo is the most scatterbrained and playful, so he has nunchucks, a weapon infamous for its complexity and, to Corey's point, ease of injury in the user. So it was to teach him focus and not to take combat lightly. Donatello's the most intelligent and tech-savvy. He wields the bow staff, which is a simple weapon, and this teaches him creativity and making do with what he has. Oh. And Leonardo is ethical and heroic. He wields katanas, again, the only bladed weapons of the four, as they are the most lethal. And this is to teach him that ultimately, despite his ideals, he may be forced to take lives to protect people and must never fight battles recklessly. Nice. I mean, I thought that was interesting. I'd never heard or learned that. For me personally, this is the biggest nugget of this entire episode. I I love learning of like why witch turtles had witch weapons. I think that's very cool. Absolutely. Let's see. Our classmate Nathan, who also identifies as a Mikey, said, My MySpace handle was Van Gogh the Emo Turtle when I was in high school in the early 2000s. (laughs) I don't know what that means, but I love it. Also, Raphael was really whiny in the movies. Yeah, he does have a kind of like pity party and it goes off, sulks on his own. Wait, I'm trying to remember what in the movie, why he goes off and sulks. He gets beaten by, is it because he gets beaten by Casey Jones he gets mad? He he loses a sigh. Oh, like loses in a the sigh. fight, he, he misplaces it. So he's really throwing a little pity party because he misplaced one of his weapons. And I feel like he takes it real hard when Splinter gets captured. Like he kind of has a meltdown that Splinter's gone. I think. Again, yeah, definitely think the hothead of the group for sure. Yeah, yeah, very hothead. He's also the one that has like a very uh, stereotypical New Yorker accent in that 1990 movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, what are you right? talking about? Like, <laughs> you got it. You don't know what, no one knows what cricket is. Yeah, yeah. it's great. Yeah, definitely sounds like a cabbie in uh, any New York City based movie. Classmate Aaron with an E is a Leonardo who says, Mm -hmm. my friend's younger brothers were obsessed with the turtles and us girls had fun while we were in high school watching the TMNT song performed by Vanilla Ice. I remember some lyric like, go ninja, go ninja, go. Aaron, you nailed it. Nailed it. Also, Rob and Ben, this is about you, I believe. This is about me. Ninja Turtle fight moves at the waterfall in Astoria, Oregon, which was a scene from one of the movies. Ben, we got to do a smash cut. Got to tell us about this. <laughs> smash cut. Got to explain it fast. In the third Turtles movie, they have a, a big fight at a waterfall after they've gone back in time. And Astoria is this great hotbed for shooting locations. You've, you've got Free Willy. You've got Kindergarten Cop. Of course, for this episode's audience, you've got the Goonies, Goonies. And also this one random scene from the third Turtles movie is at a waterfall right outside of downtown. So we we went and checked it out and did some uh, fake ninja fighting there. That's awesome. Some reenactments. Yes. What else we got? Splinter Jim, who identifies as a Mikey, said, I love the jokes the Turtles had at some point during each episode. I also love pizza. I hear you, buddy. And the Turtles and I definitely have that in common. Breach. Mm-hmm. April O'Nixmith, <laughs> who identifies, we got another Leo here, has a, a great memory. I only recently learned the theory that Splinter gave the turtles their weapons to offset their personalities, much like our other listener mentioned, oh, yeah. and kind of goes through what some of those reasons were. And it says, I think that's really cool. Whether it's actually true or not, growing up watching Looney Tunes, 
TMNT was the show that taught me cartoons could be a little deeper than a farce set to orchestra music. <laughs> There's some layers here. I, well I agree. Worded. I like, like that. It's great. I also think the show did a lot to create the environment that allowed our generation to absorb and normalize things like Dragon Ball Z and Pokemon. Hell, when this came out, it was still called Japanimation, right? Like we usually, oh, yeah. it's referred to now as like anime, but at that time, you know, Japan was very much a part of that genre of, uh, of animation. And so uh, listener April O'Nick Smith also goes on to say, wild to me that this show basically launched Chuck Lorre's career. Again, we talked about that. Oh, yeah. A right, right, very, right. very strange, unexpected connection, uh, which I thought was awesome. Other than that, it's an absolute classic. There we go. Uh, and our last classmate, Mephistopheles, who is a Leonardo at heart. Again, Leo. So much love for Leo. You used yeah. to watch the cartoon after school every chance I got. I still have the theme song firmly lodged into my brain. Gentlemen, join me. Heroes in a half shell. Turtle, Turtle power. power. Thank you. Yeah. So good. Mm. Uh, thanks, class. I really appreciate you all uh, raining. And we had a lot. We had a large response on this survey. So I mean, there's a lot of turtle love out there. Lot of turtle love, and we completely understand why. So thanks so much for sharing those memories. Dudes, I got to tell you, I'm starving. We've talked about so much. And it looks like today for lunch, we died on turtle soup. Oh, you wouldn't, you monster. <sighs> no pizza? With grated, Hold on, with grated cheese on top. Because remember okay, that well, cheese grater that shredder space on yeah. Okay, but you know what? To your guys' point, maybe there's a slice of day-old pizza from yesterday. Thank God. Only way to find out, though, is if we hit the cafeteria, have a little break, and come back for contemporary culture. Oh, thanks, Splinter. After all this pizza talk, I cannot skip cafeteria lunch. Totally. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles will return after these messages. It's the Turtles Party Wagon. The wacky attack band means good times for the green guys and hard knocks for the foot, especially with the tenderizer. Yeah, and it's a big hit everywhere we go. And look, here comes the turtle cycle with its working handlebar slingshot and armored sidecar. It'll drive Shredder crazy. Yeah, let's step on it. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Vehicles and figures each sold separately from Playmates. We now return to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Okay, that mock turtle soup was so good. You monster chrome dome. How dare you? <laughs> Although I will say this much. The lunch, it kind of feels like there's a crane rumbling in my stomach. Uh, oh, yeah. Let's go. Like a crane kind of you know, good, good, good luck delodging I, I think we need to distract ourselves with a little palate cleanser. And let's talk about the continued blossoming success of this franchise in the 90s and beyond. Again, we're at 1990. We're still at the height. This movie comes out. It's the fourth highest grossing film of 1990. It's also the highest grossing independent film at that point, earning more than $200 million worldwide on a mere $13 million budget. It was the highest grossing independent film until like the Blair Witch Project overthrew it like 10 years later. Wow. I didn't know that. That's cool. That's super amazing. And this was like an early film for New Line Cinema. At that time, New Line didn't wasn't really much in the game. I think they had done Nightmare on Elm Street. So this is really helping to once again put New Line on the map. Also around this time, as I mentioned, uh, season eight, the cartoon gets a new tone, look, and theme song. So Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles yeah, right. so good. goes away. 
Did you guys re-listen to the new theme song? No. So it's no, like I missed it. It's like teenage mutant ninja turtles. Like it's this really interesting pause, Mm-mm. and then it Mm-mm. goes into what I can best describe a big hair power rock ballad. Ooh, yeah. It's interesting. Not nearly as catchy. I mean, it oh, saves itself a little bit because it just feels like repetitive and robotic. And then it kind of saves itself, but it's just not as good. But they darken the tone. They darken the color palette. The skies are more dark and cloudy and red tinged. The turtles look a little uh, grittier. The animation styles, you know, like I said, a little darker. The themes are a bit more adult. It's less campy, kooky, wild, jokey fun. They introduce a new kind of big bad. It's Lord Dreg. He's an evil alien warlord from Dimension X. Shredder and uh, uh, Krang are still around, but Dreg becomes kind of the main villain. And it's sort of a big showdown with him to end the series in 1996 with hmm. its final season and its total run of 193 episodes. Wow. That's a lot. Wild. It did great. Did all right. So we do have two more sequels to the movie. The Secret of the Ooze comes out in 91, the next year. That's a fast turnaround. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, where we get Vanilla Ice and his ninja rap song. Go ninja, go ninja, go. A little bit lighter go, tone. So go. Playmates is like, okay, we'll do toys based off this movie because it's not as dark and gritty and serious. Then we get Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 in 1993. This is where they go back in time to Samurai Days where they fight in front of Ben's waterfall. I just want to uh, say real quick, every time I try and watch this movie... I fall asleep. I find the third one so boring. It's so hard to watch. So the movie quality drops with each movie and the box office returns also drop. But like the suits in this one look really bad. The animatronics in the suits are terrible compared to the first movie, especially. It looks awful. This is probably the point where I was just totally checked out on the turtles too. I think I'd aged out. Exactly. I was like well past... Caring about the turtles at that point, I think. Yeah, agree. So that's really the end of these live action movies, but we have two other live action things going on in the 90s. I'm going to back up a little bit. Back to 1990, I did not know about this. There's a stage musical coming out of their shells featuring the turtles as a rock band. And they played 40 shows across the U.S., probably why I didn't hear of it. I probably did not live in a market they played in. But Turtles on Tour as a rock band? Okay. Crazy. I've seen clips of it. I've seen it talked about in like other random shows that revisit this time period. It's it was bad and it was mm. not in character and it was ridiculous. But yeah, they're playing like guitars and they're playing the drums, but they're in full suits. Yeah. It's like, what's the other extension of this product we can do? We need a live tour. We're not gonna do it on ice, so let's do it for a rock show. It was whoa man. I mean, when we talked to Darren McBee about American Gladiators, they took that show on the road, but that makes sense. Totally. Like, gladiators mm-hmm. fighting in your local community with, like, a local firefighter or, you know, Navy SEAL or whatever. That makes sense. But doing this as a rock tour makes no earthly sense whatsoever. I don't get it. Well, don't despair, guys, because they write the ship in 1997. Because the animated series is done, but we're going to do a live-action television show. Ninja Turtles, The Next Mutation. Oh, dear. And it's amazing. It's so great. It's high quality, Chris? big budget. It goes for 50 seasons. It's still running. Don't lie to the Wins children. Emmys. <laughs> it's like Cats. Everyone's been in it. No, it's... Uh, <laughs> 
This is a very failed one season run. They try to introduce a fifth turtle uh, and it's a female turtle, which, you know, I, I can get behind them wanting to diversify the cast. Her name is Venus DeMilo, but apparently she's hated. I don't know if it's sexism or if it's just like a terrible attempt to revive. I couldn't, I didn't watch it. I had too much to take in and I didn't budget time for this. Uh, but it was canceled after one season. And Laird actually later said it was the only licensed Turtles project he, quotes, truly regretted. Mm. Yeah, and it's not like they got no one, uh, some nobody off the street to make this show. They got Saban. Saban does Power Rangers. Probably, yeah. besides the Turtles, the most famous martial arts show ever produced. Yeah. And I'll, I'll argue with Nick, more than Dragon Ball Z. I'll say it's more popular than Dragon Ball Z. Power Rangers is a massive titan, so they know what they're doing, and uh, they just biffed it. It just didn't work live action. Yeah, and the suits look terrible. Like, they're even worse than the third movie. Like, the yeah. qual- it, it, they look kind of creepy. It, we're, it's a bit uncanny valley, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of tough to do a live action turtle show on a week-to-week basis. And also, Power Rangers, I kind of feel like Power Rangers were pretty inspired by the turtles, too. I know that they totally. were, like, based on an old Japanese show, but... The reason that Power Rangers exist is, I think, because of the turtles. You got color-coded martial arts teenagers. Like, it's it's pretty Totally. It's coming close. off the back of that hype, 100%. Yeah. And this is where I think we really culminate with peak turtle power. We're hitting <laughs> – it, it cannot be sustained forever. We're hitting the apex, and we're going down the mountain on the other side. It's the end of the millennium. It's the end of an era. We're seeing those dwindling box office performance. The live action movies go away. The cartoon ends in 96. The toy line ends in 97. That new show was a flop. And a big thing happens in 2000. Corey, what happens in 2000 with this Eastman-Laird partnership? So yeah, there's some cracks. I think I think they maybe had started earlier than that. But basically, Eastman sold his share of the turtle empire to Laird and basically won it out. And this kind of marks not only the end of their business partnership, but it's kind of the end of their friendship. Yeah. Because remember, they lived together. They were working together. They built this thing together. And this is really where, personally, they just start to very much fall apart and go their own direction. When it sounds this live action show is also part of the final feather that broke the turtles back, if I might say. <laughs> because the, the fans had, I guess, for many years always asked for a fifth turtle, introduce a fifth turtle. And Laird was this purist and said, no, we'll never do a fifth turtle. It's four Ninja Turtles. And Eastman, who, as as um, Corey has mentioned, you know, was kind of like on his way out of Turtles along with many of the rest of us in the mid-90s. And he's like, <laughs> sure, why not? I don't care. Whatever. Fifth Turtle. That's fine. And that was such a divisive philosophical approach to the Turtles that I think that helped uh, make this division happen. Yeah. So, you know, 2000, we really see the Turtle go back into its shell. It needs time to rest. These things cannot be sustained forever. But... Don't call it a comeback, because in 2003, there's a new animated TV series. Four Kids Entertainment launches a new series that runs for seven seasons and concludes with a movie in 2009, Turtles Forever. Laird has a role in the production. Nice. And he's creating this closer adaptation to the original comic. It kind of does what the 1990 movie does, but remains even more faithful to the original source material. And if you look at it uh, animation style-wise, 
it really feels like a modernized aesthetic of the original cartoon. If you take that original Ooh. cartoon, you up the graphics quality, you make it look a little more serious. That's what the show looks like. There's a really good YouTube channel, Jay's Reviews, where he does this like eight-part in-depth retrospective of each season. Hmm. So if this is a show you're interested in learning about or want to revisit, I watched a couple of them and kind of scrubbed around. But uh, he does like a pretty good review of like the plot and the character and the changes and all that kind of stuff. They're each about 40 or so minutes. But I would say like I I got a little taste of this one and I was like, yeah, I could see this one. Like it makes sense why this existed and cool that Laird was uh, on board with it. Again, he's the purist more than anything. He wants that true OG style and everything that is TMNT. But the thing is, I think he kind of reached his limit too with that show. Because then in 2009, that's when he sells the ownership of the Turtles to Viacom. So I think he might have just gotten burnt out at that point of being, you know, a turtle dude for over 20 years and just wanted to give it up. You know, there's actors who leave these amazing shows and you're like, it's a runaway success. Why would you not want to keep doing this show? And they're like, I want to do something else. Like, this mm-hmm. is not my entire existence. It's not everything I want to be or do. And I can see it's even more so as a creator who's now his entire life for all of this time, successful as it was, he's kind of like, I might want to do some other stuff. So yeah, 2009, that happens. Uh, Viacom is the owner of Nickelodeon. So everything is kind of under the Nickelodeon badge. Well, and this is this is not a small buy. I mean, right before this, like we said, Eastman and Laird have split. Eastman sells his share of the rights to Laird, who's still hanging on. And then the, the, the deal is $60 million. And that all goes to who? Just Laird. Eastman, and this happened, mm-hmm. like the selling, here you can have my shares, I don't care about turtles anymore, was like just right before this Viacom deal was announced. And then, yeah. so but I think Eastman's the one with the tank, right? So he still has his tank he can play with. He's got the tank at home. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's basically a decade after he parted ways. I mean, you okay. have to, yeah, yeah. When, you, when you peace out, you have to realize like something like this could happen. I don't think mm-hmm. he's probably bitter about the money. Their issues seem to be more about just creative differences and, yeah. you know, falling apart from each other. But yeah, we, we did skip over something important in 2007, which is TMNT. TMNT. It is an animated mm. movie. This is the first computer animated CG turtle film. Oh, interesting. It did pretty well. Earned $95 million at the box office. It was released in theaters. And this is the first departure in the animation style. Not only is it CG, but visually it's just a different look. And this has some pretty big names in it, voice actor-wise. Chris Evans. Whoa. Captain America. Sarah Michelle Gellar, Buffy, the Vampire Slayer, Kevin Smith, the comic books guru of them all, also creator of Clerks, Uh, Patrick Stewart, Jean-Luc Picard, Professor X. This cast is insane. I had no idea this about this. And Maku Awamatsu, who voices Uncle Iroh from Avatar The Last oh, Airbender. Oh, cool. Yeah, he's a great voice actor. Like great him. voice actor. Unfortunately, this is around the time that Mako passes away uh, from esophageal cancer. And so he didn't get to really finish his part. So much like in Avatar, Greg Baldwin steps in to take over the voice acting for the character. So you get a little bit of Mako and a little bit of Greg in this movie, much like you do with the later seasons of Avatar. But I just thought that was really cool to see this entire voice cast. I was like, oh my God, these are huge names. So cool. I started watching this movie. I didn't finish it. It was fine. But it sees our four turtles. It kind of jumps ahead. They've grown apart after they defeated Shredder. And they're all doing their own thing. 
and they're in different oh. just stages of life. They're not really getting along. And this movie sees them reunite, overcome their faults and their differences to save the world from an ancient evil creature. It's a cool premise. I like the plot. It sounds cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Raph is a, uh, a vigilante fighter. Makes uh, sense. Michelangelo is an entertainer, so he actually puts on a fake turtle head. Like he's, it's almost oh like. Oh my God. <laughs> it's almost like when Ray and Zedmore are like going to entertain as Ghostbusters, <laughs> but they put on a mask. Like they weren't really the actual people. It's almost like that, call? which is funny. He Man. I love that line. So good. Oh, so good. He Man, He Man. And Leonardo's like gone off to South America to like meditate and study and find sure. himself and, On point. and Donatello is I think he's working for like a call center somewhere. <laughs> he's just no. like I think he's like tech support. So no. like it's a cool premise. The the story was it was fine. It was fine. Okay. But nothing I, I didn't finish it. It wasn't worth it to me. But there you go. Uh, as mentioned in 2009, Laird sells the franchise, and we also see a comic book's return in August 2011. IDW Publishing launches a new Turtle comic series. Eastman comes back as co-writer and illustrator. Mm. This series is still running and has 257 issues so far. Whoa. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of issues. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. Prolific. Eastman came back to the Turtles and he seems to have really kind of gotten a lot of being involved with this new series through IDW. Yeah. And it's interesting. There's a little bit of an overlap. Well, kind of between this IDW publishing and Mirage Studios because Mirage is still around. Well, let's just jump ahead to that. So they released in total 129 issues. There's four different volumes. But I think it's around 2009 they stopped publishing. And in 2014, they kind of shuttered business and ceased Mm. operations under the Mirage Studios banner. So I think that's around the time IDW picks up. But a lot of this faltering came from the fact that the creators really had to stray away from being involved in it to do all of this other stuff and manage this empire that they really didn't get to be involved with the day to day. They had to hand it off to other people. And I think just ultimately, you know, it kind of fell by the wayside. But again, uh, Eastman does come back for that IDW run. We see a third animated series in 2012, just called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, sometimes known as Tales of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They brought tails back? I thought those were problematic. Different spelling, Ben. Oh. It's going to be okay. Oh, oh, Different like spelling. stories of turtles. Different I spelling. I got it. I got it. I'm right. back. I'm back. Yeah, this was the adult version. It's on Cinemax. So, uh, mm. no. <laughs> um, this premiered in September of 2012 on Nickelodeon. This is after Viacom had rights to it. You know, Nickelodeon steps up, runs for five seasons. Uh, this is part of Nickelodeon's strategy to reboot established brands and introduce them to new viewers. So it begins with the turtles emerging from their home in the sewer for the first time. They're fighting enemies in present-day New York, all kind of similar. Playmates Toys, still around, releases a new line of merchandise with these character designs. Animation-wise, it's very similar to the 2007 movie. Like, they look very similar. Mm. Again, this is computer-generated graphics. Also, some big names in voice acting. Jason Biggs. He was oh, the main sure. character in American yeah, Pie. American Pie. Nice. Mr. Rob Paulson's back. Yes. Not as Raphael this time, but as Donatello. He does great. We also have Sean Astin. Might oh, be familiar no with that guy. Speaking of the Goonies. And Seth He's a Green Goonie. actually steps in. I think it's the same role as Sean. No, it's the same role as Jason Biggs. I think he steps in after Biggs leaves. So okay. Seth that's Green cool. comes in later. So that's super cool. But we can't keep the turtles at bay. Unfortunately, they go to Michael Bay. 
They give them to Bay. Mm, nice. Live action is back. 2014, the reboot of the film series starring the dynamic, the magnetic Megan Fox. And the only person who could salvage this movie, quite frankly, which, I mean, this is a tall order, is Will Arnett. I love Will Arnett. Yeah. He's hilarious. You can only do so much, Will. Yeah, uh, this is live action. They are CG turtles. What they do is they have actors in motion capture turtle suits. So they're doing all of the actual like action and fighting and everything, sort of like they did with Gollum for... Um, the Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings. Again, it's not directed by, but produced by Michael Bay, who brought back Transformers. <sighs> yeah, I remember being just sort of a forgettable movie. I think I've seen pieces of it or something. I don't, I don't remember seeing it. That's the consensus of this movie on Rotten Tomatoes. Neither entertaining enough to recommend nor remarkably awful. This movie may bear the distinction of being the dullest movie ever made about talking bipedal reptiles. All right. All right. The Green Gauntlet was thrown down. I'll pick it up. Ben, you have something to say. You have something to say. I'm going to say something controversial. I like both these movies. All right. For (laughs) what they are. They are like low intelligence, summer blockbuster, eye candy, as Michael Bay crushes explosions and dynamic action sequences. Will Arnett as Vern, April sidekick, does a great job. The stories are pretty good, actually. The lines are pretty good. The art direction's pretty good. The modernization of the turtles, I enjoy. Like, they're more like what teenagers were at that time. They, it's not like the same old 80s teens. It's like modern teens. And they're interesting. You know, like uh, Donatello as the inventor has, like, gadgets hanging all over him that he's invented and he's using, which is kind of a fun new design. Raph looks awesome. He's big and brutal and, like, intense. Megan Fox turning April O'Neil into, like, a really intense, objectified sex object is real bad. That's a really, really, really dumb choice in the movie. And personality-wise, like, April has, like, a fun personality. She's the Janine Melnitz of the movie. Janine is fun. She has personality. And I just, I didn't feel like Megan Fox pulled it off. She's just kind of like... Not at all. "Eh." Yeah, just kind of... And I was kind of bummed the second one, which I think is called Out of the Shadows. I was kind of bummed it didn't follow The Secret of the Ooze where it had Toka and Razor, because I would have liked to see this style story with Toka and Razor, because they were cool back then. Different story. Anyway, for what they are, they're fun. <laughs> ben, you are not alone because even though this got kind of raked over the coals by reviews and critics, it earned almost $500 million. Holy crap. So it did very well at the box office. So you're yeah. not the only person. Okay. You know, story-wise, nothing surprising here. April stumbles upon the turtles, meets them. They uncover a mystery, attempt to foil Shredder's mutagenic plots. Yeah. Ta-da. Nailed it. So... The sequel that everyone apparently wanted, including Ben, Out of the Shadows, comes out two years later in 2016. For reasons, Laura Linney's in this movie? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It's a choice. That's wild. She's the police chief, I think. Yeah. Or like a head detective. she got a good payday is what I'm hoping. I mean, she probably did, but I'm like, Laura, are you hurting, girl? What's going on there? Uh, The movie introduces a lot of characters. Casey Jones. Krang yeah. is in this one. Krang's Baxter on. Stockman played by the one and only. Not who you think it is. Not who you think it is. I can't remember the actor's name. It's Medea himself, Tyler Perry. Oh, yeah, it's Tyler <laughs> Perry. <laughs> That's wild. Right. Because this is an important distinction. 
The cartoon kind of whitewashes the character in the original comic book. Uh, Baxter Stockman is a black oh, character. Oh, really? Okay. And he's made into this like nerdy white guy in the cartoon. And that kind of carries on pretty much, I think, until this movie. Maybe the comics sort I of didn't stay true The comics stay. I didn't even realize because I just read the comics and I didn't see an uh, episode of the cartoon with him. Yeah. And he's he's black in the, in the wow. comics. Wow. So at least it brings it back to a, you know cool. the original kind move. of version of the character and not having, again, a little, little bit of whitewashing, which is not ideal. Yeah. So Baxter's back, and then it features Bebop and Rocksteady and the Technodrome. Oh, so that's... Bebop and Rocksteady are super fun in the sequel. Like, they are really good. They're a good time. I was surprised by this. It brings a lot back of the lore that I was surprised by. And I will say visually, like the characters look really good. I, I don't yeah. like the turtles, but Bebop, Rocksteady, and Krang look really freaking good. They're awesome. They're really well done. They're really well done. Amazing CG. You know, this one actually got mixed reviews, better reviews, yeah. deeming a slight improvement over its predecessor, but it did not make nearly as much money. It only made $245 million off of a $135 budget. Oh, yeah, that's so, not I mean, good. It made money. It made money, yeah, but yeah, yeah, not yeah, yeah. a ton. And this really sealed the deal. There's going to be a third movie. Not anymore. Oh, really? They canceled it. Mm. Didn't make enough. What happens when you can't make a sequel? What do you do? Do you just you shutter? You just up, give you up. Just, you come up with a new idea. Come up with a new you idea. come up with a new idea. <laughs> and that new idea you. <laughs> is you reboot the reboot. A re- oh, reboot. God. So, yes. In the works since 2018. A reboot, hmm. also produced by Michael Bay. In July 2021, Kevin Eastman revealed it was still in production and development. He said that Paramount took the reactions to the previous two films to heart and that it's going to be next level type of stuff, his quote. And in August 2021, it was announced that Colin and Casey Just, uh, brothers, are penning the script. Hmm. But that's kind of the last that's out there. It's a daring move with a reboot this far out. I mean, part of what succeeds with a reboot or a late sequel, you you mentioned, um, oh, A Christmas Story Christmas. And like, I really liked Blade Runner 2049. That's a very late sequel from an 80s mm-hmm. property. Yeah, Man, this far out from the original, it's a delicate dance of like, you got to have enough of like the OG to like bring the core audience back, but you got to have a new enough story to like let new audiences propel and like... Be part of it. it's a man this far out a reboot is hard yeah yeah and especially how much it's been it's... mined recently too mm. feels like you, you let it sit a little bit but yeah well because there's still one more property that's out there which is the rise of the teenage mutant ninja turtles 2019 we're back to traditional animation as a television show very different art style yeah very exaggerated appearances If you don't know Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you should look this up really quick. Apparently, they reimagine the turtles, and the origins of Splinter are different. How they get their ninja powers, foot are different. Yeah, looks they look quite quite unique. So the president of Nickelodeon had this to say: "The Turtles is a property that is reinvention in its DNA, which keeps it fresh and relevant to every new generation while satisfying the demand from its adult fans." Turtles has been an incredibly important franchise for us since we reignited it five years ago, and we're excited for the new series to take the characters in a different direction with more humor, a younger and lighter feel, and all new dimensions to explore. Nice. Okay. I'm intrigued. Yeah, it does look very different, though. It does. Yeah, this one ran for just two seasons, 
And then they produced a movie that released on Netflix just this past August, Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, colon, the movie. So that, <laughs> I guess, wrapped up the storyline. But again, that's probably the most radical departure in terms of like animation style. Radical! Also this year, Corey found a great little nugget on the comic book side. So again, those comics are still going strong. And you found like a really interesting story that actually has older roots. Yeah, so there's this really cool series. It came out in uh, October of 2020, and it just finished up in April of 2022. And you can get the trade paperback of it now. It's called Last Ronin. Mm. It's a story by Eastman and Laird, although I, Laird is like a little bit less involved, I think, than Eastman. Um, and and a, a guy named Tom Waltz. Um, basically, it's the story. It's like the last turtle story is what the, what the idea is. There's a single turtle left. Is it a spoiler who it is? Yeah, they they kind of okay. keep it secret until I think the second issue or the end of the first oh, issue okay. of who the turtle okay. is. It's set in the future. It's like this dystopian New York. And the, the last turtle wears a black mask and he's carrying all four of the weapons. Wow. And it's kind of dark. Like he, he hears the voices of the other turtles in his head. So there's like these word bubbles that come from outside the panel of the other turtles, sort of his memories of the turtles talking to him. Wow. So they kind of get into like what happened to the other turtles and what happened to the supporting cast and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's really cool. And it's it's kind of cool that Eastman is really involved. And the one of the coolest things in it is they do some flashbacks and the flashbacks are in the style of the very first turtle comics. The, the art oh, style that's awesome. is Eastman doing the, the same kind of scratchy black and white art. Um, so if, if you're interested in checking out the comics, I, I suggest reading the first turtle volume of the black and white comics and then reading this last Ronin book because it's like a nice kind of bookend to the whole like comic story. It's really, really cool. That's awesome. And it's actually a good story, too. This feels like the Hugh Jackman, like Logan. This is the Logan for the turtles. This is kind of great. Chris, I haven't read this comic and I doubt you have. I want to hear your guess. Who's the last turtle and why? Oh, that is a really interesting question. I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Oh, I won't say who it is, but if you want to guess. On one hand, I feel like it's Leonardo because like he is the leader and I could see him sort of carrying the banner till the end. But I could also see him sacrificing himself in a battle and it's like yeah. I don't know, like uh Raphael's so like gritty and tough. I could see him being like I, I could make a case for any of them. So it's so hard to guess. There's not in my mind a Oh, you know what? Nope. Take it back. Venus de Milo. Done. Okay. We're gonna move on. <laughs> Yeah, you guessed it. Venus de Milo. That's, that's, that's it. the whole, that's the whole, like, <laughs> I wasn't going to spoil it, but you got it. Can you yeah. imagine? Is it Shredder in a turtle suit? He's, like, gutted one of the turtles, and he's crawled into the suit, and now he's pretending to be a turtle. He's in a turtle, turtle skin suit. That's oh dark. God. Look, and his, his personality was overwritten by Michelangelo yeah. by some kind yeah. of, like, hologram. Well, did you yeah. see there's one where James uh, Avery was pretending to be Michelangelo? So like, it's me. I'm a turtle. Yeah. yeah that's totally who it is. It's Shredder. <laughs> That's the last turtle. I like that. That's fascinating, actually. Did you have an idea or a rationalization? I wish I had a much more entertaining answer like you did, Chris. My instinct is Leonardo because that's like a good dark story of like the leader lost everyone he was supposed to protect. Mm. So that's really interesting. But I'm intrigued by it being Mikey because that's the biggest character arc. The most irresponsible, silliest actually made it and then like matured to like survive the longest would be really interesting. Side story, I just reserved it on my library. I'm going to read it. I'm very excited. This is going to be very It's good. really good. The art's great. The story's great. 
it's a fun kind of like capstone because you don't even need to read the comics. There's a lot of like callbacks to the comics, but it's it's turtle lore that everybody knows yeah. if you've watched the shows or the movies. So Amazing. it's like a good kind of last turtle story. It's really cool. When you said awesome. this is an idea they had cooking up for a while, like it's not something that just came up, right? Yeah, the germ of it came from like back in the 80s, they had like in 87, they had plotted out their idea for the last turtle story, which actually sounded a little bit more like the movie, the TMNT movie. I think it originally mm. was them like going their separate ways and okay. coming back together. But some of the germs from that ended up in this book. Then I think it evolved from there. But yeah, way back in the 80s, they kind of came up with the last story as their kind of like goalpost that they, they could follow when they were writing the comics to know where they were going. Um, so yeah, it, it does have these roots all the way back to the original series. I mean, to some of your points, like it's kind of the same story regenerated again and again in all these different iterations. I like it when they kind of stray. It's sort of like Star Wars where it's like, we have so much story to tell in this universe. Stop talking about the Skywalkers and let's venture into these new properties. And it's been really successful. And so I would love to see if there are new iterations, like if Bay does end up doing this new movie or there's one more we're going to talk about. I'd love to see a different take, like a really fresh perspective and not just same story, but with a different angle on it. Like doing something like this last Ronin comic is really fascinating. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I don't know if they would do something like that with a, like a live action movie because it's so such a departure. True. And it's super sad. <laughs> like the whole thing is kind of sad, but I mean, like yeah. in a good way. That's a good point. It's definitely the biggest departure from the like pizza dude, like mm-hmm. that whole aesthetic <laughs> right. that a lot of people know. Yeah, it's like miles and miles away from the pizza dude loving dudes for sure. Well, here's the thing. We got one more thing on the drawing board. One more thing coming down the sewer pipe. From an unlikely champion, perhaps, Seth Rogen. Summer 2023, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles colon Mutant Mayhem. This will be animated, so not live action. And he said it's going to be a more personal story and focus on the teenage aspect more than previous versions. And he said a lot of this is kind of drawing on like personal experiences of people involved, like awkwardness and insecurity, the desire to belong and be accepted that we all feel in our adolescent years as we're coming into our own. And he said as a lifelong fan of Ninja Turtles, the idea of honing in on that element was really exciting and served as like a jumping off point for the film. So we will see in less than a year, unless it's delayed, we're going to get Mutant Mayhem in the theaters. Hmm. Can't keep those turtles down. I'll go with another controversy here. I think Seth Roken might actually be a good pick for this. I think Seth has been at the helm and acted in a bunch of movies that like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm stuck on super bad, but I can go beyond super bad that like, he's got an insight into teenage life. Like he seems to understand the teenage plight. What's funny to teenagers. He's done a ton of comedies that teens love. I don't know. I think it could actually like not be awful. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, I, I, I don't say uh, unlikely in the fact that he's a bad choice. It's more of just like not who you would expect. You'd be like, no, Eastman is back. Laird yeah. is back. But no, it's Seth Rogen. But I think you're very For surprised. all the reasons you mentioned, you're absolutely right. And um, I think you could the do idea it. is if this is successful, it could launch a lot of other things in this universe. So this is kind yeah. of a, a proof of concept. Like, will this version of it be interesting to a big enough audience that, well, we could expand it from there. So I guess we'll find out. 
Yeah, I think the turtles are most successful when they know their audience. Like, I, I, a yeah. big part of the reason yeah, why the right, '90s movie right. works so well is it knows its audience. So maybe that's the right approach going to the, the teenage route. I'm curious to see what they do with it. Yeah, it could maybe happen. To kind of put a little finality to this, we talked about how Eastman and Laird had parted ways. Ben and I both watched the Toys That Made You episode. It's really great, as Ben mentioned. I would highly encourage it if you like this property, this franchise. And it does focus a lot on the relationship of those two. They're both in it. They're talking to you separately the whole time. And they're talking about their friendship and their business partnership that fell apart and the hurt feelings. But they actually reunite in person as part of this. And we couldn't quite pinpoint what year it was, but it's pretty recent, it seems. And it was just kind of nice to see them meet and hug and start talking. And they're like walking through and they're even saying like, oh, yeah, I think he's still in that same house, Laird is, because he's like, yeah, we had this window built. The idea is we'd be working on pages and passing them back and forth. Yeah, but that never happened. It was like sadly nostalgic, and they were like, it's going to be hard to rebuild, but you could at least see that hopefully it's the start of something. So I, I felt better about that, that maybe they were able to kind of rekindle a bit of that friendship, because if you've ever been working and living with somebody that closely and all of a sudden that's just like pulled away from you like that's a loss yeah oh yeah well and for me too like revisiting this series because as a kid i engaged with the turtles as you know cool turtles with weapons and all that kind of stuff but like revisiting it for the show learning more about the creators that they were able to keep control of the turtles for as long as they wanted to they kind of left of their own own accord where when so many creators get screwed out of their control, especially comic creators. There's so many stories of they create this thing that now is a billion dollar property and they didn't have any control over it after they initially created it. So that they were able to be a part of the Turtles for so long. And Eastman's still writing these great Turtle stories like almost 40 years later. I just thought that was really lovely that they started out of their living room joking around late at night to this like (laughs) billion dollar empire that they still were able to be involved with and never really were ejected out of it. I think that's just kind of a lovely story, even though there was some friction between the two of them that they were able to, to be so much a part of the turtles for so long and still are, which I I think that's really amazing. Yeah. I think you put it well well there. It's on their own terms, right? Nobody got wedged out. Nobody was forced to give up shares. Nobody was given an ultimatum. They decided this is the right time for me. It wasn't the same time for both of them, but to your point, they did it when they were ready to. That's a great, uh, I think, end point for this. Yeah, I agree. Okay, guys, we've covered so much ground, so much of the sewer. I'm shell-shocked. Okay. Let's retreat to our farmhouse to recoup, to take a breather, and then we're going to reform our fearsome group in math class, where we... Run the equations Donatello style and figure out how this massive franchise holds up today. Yeah, I think I'm ready to take Baxter's stock man of this property. Oh, boy. No. Oh, oh, come, come on, oh, turtles! Come on, come on! <laughs> <laughs> So, Corey, let's talk about how Ben's jokes hold up today. Uh, yeah. so, uh, Didn't last very long from a minute ago. So, <laughs> it's already, after a minute, it's already stale. They've <laughs> aged poorly since we just switched classrooms. <laughs> 
Corey, you're the person who brought this to my mind because I knew you were firmly like interested in this property. You had the connection to the comics and I had you in mind when I came up with it. Do we start with you? How does this hold up? It's an unwieldy thing to talk about. So come at it at any angle you want to. What do you think about TMNT today? I think it does really hold up very well. I mean, like we were talking about, the 1990 movie holds up absolutely perfectly. It's watchable today and it's enjoyable for all the reasons we talked about. I think the cartoon, the original cartoon doesn't hold up super well. I think it's seated in its time. It was great for what it was, but it's not not like, say, like the Batman, the animated series is something you could go back yeah. to. It's not quite that level oh, of so good. It transcends its genre or anything good like that. Good comparison, yeah. Also kind of engaging more with the the comics. The comics hold up really well. And this, like I said, this last Ronin story is amazing. It's kind of like a great way to, as an adult, kind of engage with the Turtles property. Because I feel like a lot of the more modern stuff is just not for me. The cartoons, the Michael Bay movies, not really that interest me that much. But this last Ronin story is pretty great. But overall, I, I think like what I said before, when the Turtles know their audience... It's, mm. it's great. It holds up well. My oldest daughter, she said she went through like a binge a while ago and watched one of the series that was in the 2000s mm. somewhere and it worked for her. So it's of all the kind of like toyetic properties of the 80s, I think Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles has aged the best. Mm. Beat out like G.I. Joe or even like My Little Pony or He-Man. It's the one that's stayed the longest. So yeah, I think it's hold up held up really well. Those are great points. Thank you for that. Ben, uh, your thoughts. My entire answer is going to be a long-winded synonym for what Corey just said. I mean, TMNT is one of the most iconic children's properties of the 80s. And and even of modern culture, it's it's a titan. So it, it's hard to say like an overall yes, no, because it also went so many branches, right? You, like we talked about it, the comics, the games. There's so many different rabbit holes you can go down. We could do a four-hour podcast just going through all 400 toys and being like, good toy, bad toy, good toy, bad toy. Like, it could take forever. So, I mean, if I'm focusing on the 80s, man, please don't make me watch the cartoons at length. Like, they're fine, but they're not like, I can't, I, I can't like binge a season of old school Ninja Turtles. It's, it's, a, little, it's a little dry. The games are hard, but I'm now I'm now I'm kind of determined. Like I kind of want to see if I can beat the first NES one. Like I'm intrigued. I see the patterns. I know that's a unique take, but um, I mean, so many games. The toys are awesome. I'm so impressed by the creativity in the line that came out of it. Um, how they kept expanding it in such a variety of like heroes, enemies, vehicles. It's a fantastic toy line. One of the best known, I think, besides like GI Joes and Transformers from the era. And as far as it goes into the future, Corey, you said it perfectly, Just and you said it another way as the executive, I think you said, from Nickelodeon, of just like, the Turtles is about reinvention. If it can stay contemporary, if it can stay hip on what's going on with teens today, updating its animation style, if it knows its audience, it does well, and they've crushed doing that. I mean, they're still making hundreds of millions of dollars off this property, and Snorks can't say that. So it's an incredibly strong property. It's really fun. Parts of it are fun to revisit. Parts of it aren't so much. But I think that's what you have when you have such a big empire is there's so many ways to re-engage with it that feel right for you and might not be right for everyone else. It's it's fantastic. And while we've been talking, I've like ordered like six different comics from the library that are Turtles comics. I'm, I'm jazzed to get into it. That's exciting. I want to hear like your follow-ups in future episodes on what totally. you think. So. I totally will. Great revisit. I... 100% agree with both of you, so I don't want to reiterate too much of that. 
you know, the staying power, I think, is amazing. And we've talked about that reinvention that is just kind of somehow uniquely baked into this property. Uh, and the fact that it can hit nostalgia buttons for OG viewers and it can usher in a new audience of youngsters, Corey, your, you know, your daughter, oldest daughter is a good example of that and get them hooked and interested is amazing. And I agree with what you're saying about the cartoon. I wouldn't want to go watch it. I think the best thing that survives is that freaking awesome theme song. Oh, the theme song is a banger. Still the catchiest earworm of any cartoon I can ever think of. And I love Darkwing Duck and I thought that was fun. I think this oh, one's yeah. a little better. But, you know, as we mentioned, the cartoon is of an era and just it's not something I would want to re-engage with. Maybe some of the later properties, yes, but ultimately that 90s movie, I think, is probably the one thing that I could definitely see myself coming back to every now and again. Corey, you've definitely intrigued me on this Ronin comic book. I might have to go check it out as well. But I was just thinking about, like, what about this property is so interesting? And I think what it is is there's just enough mystery there. You have this unconventional warfare of ninjutsu. You have these anthropomorphic childhood pets. You have the romance of the sewer. The smell. The romance. Oh, the sights. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, the sewer's never been as appealing as it has been in this show. It's true. You have the rogues gallery of nefarious villains that are fun and ridiculous and interesting. And you have this terrifying, mysterious power from Dimension X. But perhaps the most mysterious factor of all, adolescence. That's a big mystery to everybody. The scariest, too. <laughs> Very much the scariest <laughs> of all those things. So I think that's like a huge part of the staying power. There's pretty much something for everyone. I think this does skew more like boy male sensibility, like traditionally. I don't know that there's as much there for girls and people of different genders. It's definitely angled in one direction, I think more so. And that sadly, that one attempt at a female character was a huge flop. Yeah. I hope it's not because Jesse was a female character, but it was just a terrible idea, poorly executed. You know, but really for female representation, we have April, and then there's like a side character, Daphne, but they're all sort of like lost within the franchise except for April, really. Yeah. But all that aside, I would say, I think it's that wacky combination of lore, character, and story that make this franchise something that does and can stand the test of time. I think it can continue throughout the future for the reasons we've mentioned. Find your audience, tell a good story. And in that regard, I think it will remain as fresh as a pizza sans penicillin. There you go. Sans penicillin. Do you like penicillin on your pizza? Oh! <laughs> Great line from the 90s. Oh, All yeah. right. It's perfect. Corey, I can't thank you enough for coming to talk about this insanely huge, massively successful franchise. I've been waiting to get you on the podcast, and I'm glad I found, I think, the best property to bring you back for. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, Corey, this was awesome. Thanks for being here, man. Thanks for having me. This is great. It's like a it's a wild one to talk about because there's so much. And it, you keep forgetting, oh, yeah, yeah, there's more and more. It's it's pretty wild. Absolutely. Awesome to finally meet you. Heard so much about you from Chris. And you were a, a, a ninja master of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> You're the splinter of the comic history of the property. Uh, so thanks for coming and sharing your knowledge. Oh, sensei, my sensei. Climb up on your desk, Ben. Oh, sensei, my sensei. <laughs> <laughs> so and, and I say cowbunga to both of you. Cowbunga. 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 That's great. Okay. Uh, as always, there's that one last item of business. We got to yeah. go out on the highest of high notes, which is 
the cliffhanger of what we can expect for the next episode of 80s High. It's true, but when this episode comes out, when TMNT drops through the skyline into the city sewers, it will be the holiday season. I had to think, what would be appropriate for us to talk about during the holidays? And so I thought of a property that features a magical being who comes from high above and flies around the world in cahoots with a series of magical creatures to deliver wonder and imagination to children. Oh, dear. So excited about this. Okay. There's only one way we can get into it. We're going to join Veronica Cartwright, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Paul Rubens in the 1986 Disney adventure, Flight of the Navigator. (gasps) Wow. That's a good one. Oh, my goodness. I have not seen that probably since it came out. Oh, yeah. No, it's... It's been a minute, uh, but we'll we'll dive back into the history, what we do remember about it, and, you know, we'll see uh, in math class if it's compliant with today's taste in pop culture. I'm very excited. Again, this is going to be a fun one that I basically know nothing about other than the kid on the spaceship. That's about the extent of it. I didn't realize Paul Rubens was in it. Oh, oh yeah. That's of the spaceship, man. That's, yeah. What? Oh, yeah. wow. And Sarah uh, Jessica Parker. I thought you were going Hocus Pocus for a minute. When you said Sarah Jessica Parker, oh, I was like, are we going to Hocus yeah, Pocus? Yeah, yeah. Right? Shocking. Uh, that's awesome. Good pick. Very excited. And uh, I can't wait, man. Can't wait to awesome. climb aboard that spaceship and uh, see what's the haps. All right. We'll see you next time on 80s High. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Cowabunga dudes. Cowabunga to you. Cowabunga to you. Cowabunga to you. Cowabunga. 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 Thanks everyone for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed at gregreedmusic.com with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts to help spread the rumor. Stay radical!